Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Ethan Pringle. That's right. Today, I am hosting the Nugget Climbing. I had the idea of interviewing Stephen at the end of our first interview back in May because, yeah, I just realized that Stephen has been doing a ton of these interviews and asking all the questions and being such a good listener. And personally, I just wanted to know more about Stephen and his background, his upbringing, his trajectory through climbing, and what inspired him to make this podcast. And here we are, both in Rifle, Colorado. I think other people have had the idea to interview Stephen for his own podcast, but I was persistent, and I was here at the right time, (laughs) and I followed through, so I get to do it. (laughs) So thank you, Stephen, for the honor of being a host on your podcast. I think you guys will really enjoy our conversation. I really liked learning about Stephen's upbringing in Wenatchee, Washington, and his college experience in Bellingham, and his discovering climbing and his trajectory through climbing. And then we flipped the script a little bit and took a suggestion from Tonde Catillo. And um, I reached out to some previous guests on the show for questions for Stephen for this interview. And a lot of guests chimed in with really interesting, thoughtful questions. And I couldn't have imagined better responses from Stephen. So I think you guys will really like it. And um, I hope you enjoy it. Ethan out. All right. Hey. Hey. We're doing this. <laughs> How's it going? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. I normally have a plan for how we start these, but I don't have a plan this time. Um, I think I have a plan. Do you have a plan? Yeah. Perfect. Tell me what you had for breakfast. Oh my God. He's on to me. <laughs> <clears throat> I bet I'm going to let you guess. I, I bet you can guess what I had for breakfast. <sighs> Was it sauteed beef and cabbage <laughs> wait no hold on eggs no you you had it the oh, first time really yeah sauteed, oh, okay. sauteed beef with greens and oh nice mushrooms oh nice and like a breakfast taco sort of uh, situation yum. yum yeah what kind of greens he was able to guess because that's what i eat every day uh yeah. just like a mixed green from a bag from walmart <laughs> sick yeah okay yeah like a spring mix uh like a lettuce and spinach and some carrot little carrot shavings okay yeah you know one of those like rabbit food yeah (laughs) with spinach Uh uh-huh yeah nice the kind of greens that like make you feel good about yourself but they don't actually do anything good for your body i mean right yeah i hope spinach does something good because it doesn't taste that great (laughs) you eat a lot of it i know well before you before you pulled up i i got to the campsite this evening before steven did and i was shoveling handfuls of spinach into my mouth did you have another salad in your mouth i had a mouth salad Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i've seen steven make sauteed beef with veggies at least three times on this trip and he's made leftovers every time Mm -hmm. i watch him Mm -hmm. so how many six meals six meals yeah when you make it once it's six meals no three times three with leftovers each time oh okay yeah okay but he's observed 
many more. Right. I'm a creature of habit, man. So like when I get into a meal that I enjoy, I usually just hammer that for a few weeks until I'm really sick of it. And then I move on to the next thing. But so are you eating... <clears throat> right now it's tacos. Meat tacos. Are you eating tacos. beef tacos for breakfast and dinner every day? Most days, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. That's, that uh, kind of blows my mind, actually. Yeah, most people yeah. think it's really strange. But what's interesting, what I've noticed is that most people, they they think that sounds crazy, but then when you look at what they actually eat, you know, they'll eat like a bagel and cream cheese totally. every single day for breakfast. And it's like, there's, I think most of us don't eat as wide of a variety of foods as we think we do. Right. You know? Right. We are, we're all pretty routine mm -hmm. about our eating when you when you look at it closely and break it down yeah i mean i've i've probably eaten eggs for breakfast and or dinner for the last i don't know like at least once a day for the last week yeah if not twice a day some days um so steven thank you for Hi, Ethan. thank you for uh <laughs> for agreeing to let me interview you for yeah. your own podcast. Thanks for the offer, and it's so cool that you that this is actually working out. I know. Yeah. I'm kind of I, I kind of can't believe we're actually doing this. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm nervous. Me too. I've okay, never good. been interviewed before. I mean, I've been interviewed <laughs> a number of times, and I still get nervous. But I've never been the the host slash director of of the interview. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. new new position for me. Mm -hmm. But I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Um, but yeah, it's an honor to, to host an interview with you on your own podcast. I feel like <laughs> part of the reason that I have this honor is because I was the first one to offer it. <laughs> and then the, the, the only one that was persistent with it. So that might be true. <laughs> <laughs> who was the other person who offered to interview you? Someone... A, couple, a couple people. Okay. Have. Yeah. Okay. I think Ian Yurden was keen on it. Oh, nice. Um, he, he floated out there. Tande just mentioned it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. Which is really neat. He had the idea for the format for tonight. Right. Which is super fun. So yeah. Shout out to Tande. Yeah. For coming up with tonight's format. Mm -hmm. Although we'll see, we'll see how many questions of past guests we get to, but I will say you're the only person that talked about it publicly on the show. Oh yeah. And then because of that, multiple people have actually reached out and been like, you should do that. You should take him up on that and you guys should do that. Well, I'm happy so to have, cool. have the support of yeah. multiple people. <laughs> 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 so I would like to ask you about the early years of Stephen Dimmitt, oh. the upbringing and Stephen's life pre-climbing. Okay. Yeah, if that's okay. What would you like to know? <laughs> you were born in... Wait, don't tell me. Um, it starts with a W, uh -huh. and it's in Washington. Yes, Wenatchee. Wenatchee, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Wenatchee, Washington. It's funny, the more I travel, the more I realize that people think of Washington as just a giant, green, rainy state. But it really isn't. The left third of it is what people think of when they think of Washington or what they see in the movies, you know, Seattle and it's lush and green, but then the cascades kind of run through the left third of the state. And so most of the state's actually desert. Mm. And where I grew Crazy. up, it was high desert. Okay. Um, it's, it's right in a little valley on the Columbia river. Cool. Um, I guess it's not that high desert, but very desert. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of orchards there. Cool. Okay. For much of my upbringing, Wenatchee was the apple the apple capital of the world. Say that 10 times fast. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but 
it was on the sign when you drive into town. Okay. <laughs> so it could just be a claim, but it, it could, could also be. be true. I think it's Yakima now, but it was, okay. it was Wenatchee. Cool. If you were to look at a map of Washington and just point at the middle of it, okay, you'd probably hit Wenatchee. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So still fairly close to the Cascades. Yeah. Yeah. Like Leavenworth, on the eastern. People will have heard of Leavenworth. Yeah, likely. For sure. You know, people listening to the show. It's 30 minutes from Leavenworth. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. And I didn't know, unfortunately, right. the, the tragedy here is that I didn't know about rock climbing until I turned 18 and moved away. Right. I feel like I hear a lot of people yeah. lament that, <laughs> lament stories like that. You yeah. Know, they're yeah. like, oh, I grew up near some famous climbing area and then I went, I went, like moved to the Midwest and mm. climbed in a gym for the first time and fell in love with it mm -hmm, <laughs> or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. But that's funny. It's fun. My, my parents still live there. My sister and her husband have a, a one-year-old and they're building a house in the area too. Oh, cool. And so I can go back and visit and climb in Leavenworth. So it's, awesome. it's yeah, Leavenworth's a super special place. What is Wenatchee like? Is it pretty small or... Yeah, it's a small town, smallish, like medium 50, 000, town. 50,000, people. So there's Wenatchee. Across the river is East Wenatchee, technically a separate city. Okay. So like Wenatchee, I think, is 40,000. Okay. The greater Wenatchee area is like 100,000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like a big, big town. Totally. Yeah. Small De city. Decent size. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, it was funny, though. I mean, I remember a lot of my friends in high school hated it you know they're right. like they talk shit about it all the time they couldn't wait to get out of there and go to the city and that stuff kind of like a small town feel but i loved it there yeah yeah it was close to you know we could like i could ride my mountain bike from my house to the base of a trail and go mountain biking i was like 19 minute drive from the ski resort mission ridge oh ski right resort. yeah did you grow up skiing mm -hmm. yeah we skied a lot in the winter my, my uh my parents are super into outdoor stuff and nice I never climbed, but yeah, we mountain biked a lot. We backpacked sometimes in the summer. We skied in the winters. Skiing was kind of the big, at least as far as like outdoor recreation goes, that was kind of the biggest thing for me mm -hmm. until climbing. Mm -hmm. Same. Oh, really? Well, snowboarding, but okay. yeah, I grew up like in the mountains in Tahoe okay. every weekend with my parents. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. similar vibe. And nice. you said that, um, Stephen earlier this week mentioned to me that his dad was a lawyer, but would take a six month sabbatical every five years yeah. and that you guys got to travel a fair amount when you were a kid yeah, or like in your younger years. Totally. I got to travel. I got to travel a lot as a kid. When I was five years old, we spent six months going, going all over South America and it was, and you said you kind of did it on the cheap, totally on the cheap. Man. Yeah. I don't know how they did it. I mean, my parents, we had, you know, they had three kids. I was five. My sisters were seven and nine. And, um, we backpacked around, we stayed in hotels or hostels that had cockroaches running around. I remember finding a cockroach in my shoe and like, you turn the lights on and they'd run away and oh it was my God. super fun. <laughs> Just turn the lights on and off. Uh, I remember like not being able to swim and the, we, we stayed at one place that had a swimming pool and I was all stoked, but we couldn't swim in it cause there's so many bugs in the swimming pool, but it was so fun, you know? And yeah. I didn't really, you know, you're five years old. You don't really think about those sorts of things. And I didn't really realize this until just the last couple of years, but I'm, I've become super grateful for that. I think as a kid being exposed to that many different cultures and, and just kind of growing this awareness that like, oh, not everyone lives the way that you do. Not mm -hmm. everyone grows up the mm -hmm. way that you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I remember seeing kids that were not much older than me carrying big buckets of water on their head, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. three miles to and from their little 
shack Mm -hmm. um, because they had to. Yeah. And I wasn't processing it at the time, but I think that leaves an impression on you. you Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's super valuable for young people and kids to see lots of different ways of life and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had similar experiences growing up, like visiting Mexico and stuff with my parents Okay, where my grandparents lived. Oh, okay. It's kind of funny. We have like a sort of similar sounding upbringing in a way. Yeah. yeah. My parents were super into windsurfing and skiing and snowboarding. So okay. lots of time like traveling overseas and, and also, you know, snow sports and stuff. But, um, but yeah, that's awesome that you got to travel so much as, as a kid and South America is like not many, you know, people mm. under the age of 10 get to go to South America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like invaluable. Yeah. And it's fun. I like forgot a lot of stuff, you know, like you kind of, some of it's coming back to me right now. All our stuff got stolen oh. at one point. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was really into boats for some reason, everywhere we went, there was like, you guys were on I don't know if it was some. a, yeah, some, but I think I just was in a funny little phase, you know, mm-hmm. and everywhere we went, I'd, I'd like collect these little model boats. I remember going to this, I don't know where this is. I, I want to look it up, but we got a tour of these reed islands oh, that, cool. that people, that indigenous people live on full time, you know, like okay. the, the entire island is built of reeds and they float around in these reed boats. And I remember getting a really cool little, you know, eight inch long model reed boat cool um all my boats were stolen you know all our stuff was stolen shoot and uh i think we bought you know my parents bought me like a couple pairs of underwear and like a shirt from a vendor on the street and we just like carried on wow yeah (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah i think having like i mean obviously experiencing different ways of life when you're growing up you know probably gives you like builds a greater sense of empathy and compassion for people. I think so. And then also just like having really enduring experiences when you're a kid mm. probably does too, you know? So that's cool that you got that. Do you have, do you I think that's like definitely part of who I am. Yeah. I feel, I feel that for sure. Yeah. Just like, you know, I don't think all of our stuff got stolen on any of my family vacations, but you know, it's like we, we had similar experiences like in sketchy accommodations and mm. you know different sorts of places and stuff but did you windsurf as a kid i tried it a few times and like i kind of know the basics but i never okay. got into it like the ma- the way my parents were mm. they were like hardcore into it they did races and stuff okay and they were like really in the scene in the late 80s late 80s and early 90s and stuff but I think, you know, once I was born and, um, you know, my brother was living with us and stuff, we, we went to Tahoe and skied and snowboarded more than we went to the beach and windsurfed at that point. Okay. But this is an interview about you, Stephen. (laughs) See what I did there? You did. I do. Yeah. I fell for your trap. (laughs) Um, so I mean, your parents sound rad. Like they're great. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're so supportive. You like them. They're awesome. I like them a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, we're so lucky. (laughs) We're super lucky. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, what's been so neat. I, I really didn't see this coming with this whole podcast thing. When I transitioned into climbing, you know, climbing from an outsider's perspective is just harder to relate to than most other things, you know? And I was kind of always a jack of all trades growing up. I dabbled in things. I was never really like driven at any one thing, 
fully, you know, I, I, I took music pretty far. We can, I'm sure you have questions about that. Um, skiing was kind of the thing. Music was definitely the thing for a while, but nothing really like climbing. And I so badly wanted my parents to see that, you know, to ask questions about it, to take interest in it, just to feel known, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were always incredibly supportive, but you just, you know, it's hard to relate to something that you've never done before and, and they had no exposure to it. And I'd kind of given up on it. You know, I'd been climbing for like 12 years and I was super oh. into it and, and they would ask questions from time to time. Right. But, um, did they ever go with you? Did they you did like a couple times. Did to Leavenworth? Or yeah, anything? they would come out. They came out to Smith a couple times. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. 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 And I, I don't really know what their impression was or if they had a good time oh, okay. or, or what, okay. but... Um, but they listen to the podcast now. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. I did not think, I didn't expect that, but they, it's so cute. They like, they go on hikes every day or almost every day. And once a week they'll go on a hike and they'll, they'll bring the iPhone. Oh, that's amazing. They'll listen to the podcast that's like on the their best speaker. Thing ever. And it's so great. Yeah. I'll get, oh my God. It's so funny. I'll get these uh, text messages from them, from either one of them. You know, they kind of like both use both their phones and I'll just get a string of text messages. That's like terminology about climbing. Uh-huh. you know asked in like uh-huh. hilarious right non-climber language you know right 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 they're like asking you to clarify totally yeah, yeah. they're like what what's this what's this what's this you know <laughs> chicken wing yeah what's a chicken, chicken wing? wing what's a knee what's bar a, what's a toe hook <laughs> <laughs> totally right yeah so that's, that's super awesome. fun and that's and amazing yeah 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 it really has i think connected me or brought me closer to them mm-hmm. um yeah, in a way that I didn't expect at all, and it's cool. been really cool. Yeah, that's super special. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's funny. My my parents, I mean, when I started climbing, like, they were just taking me climbing, so they just understood, like, from mm. the get-go, you know? Like, mm-hmm. they, they know what I'm doing out there. Did they both climb? Neither of them climb. Okay. Yeah, they just, like, I started doing the comps, and mm. they, I just, you know, they chaperoned me to the comps and stuff, chauffeured me around and, and everything. That was, makes like, super sense. Lucky to have their support. The competition thing mm-hmm. is, like, the transitional piece mm-hmm. that was never mm-hmm. there for me, right? Yeah, I feel like parents are more invested if their kids are in the comps. Totally. Yeah, and they can, then they that's... have to go and watch, you yep. know? Yeah, and, and that, that just makes sense to people yeah. in a way that outdoor climbing doesn't, you know, initially... Mm-hmm. makes sense for people mm-hmm. yeah. like my sister was the athlete in the family growing up you know she's a track star oh yeah and they would they loved going to her races and stuff cool but yeah you know i don't think most people see outdoor climbing as like a sport as a sport with right. like goals and objectives right, and right, right. you know wins and losses and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. like it's like the way your coworkers ask about it they're like oh you had a great day it's it, they think you're like a snowboard bum that was like Oh, another beautiful day at the mountain, just mm-hmm. having fun, you know? Mm-hmm. How was your climb? Yeah, how was your climb? <laughs> You're like, well, I did like five or six. Do you ever but... fall? Do you ever fall? <laughs> yeah. How high did you go? Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. You're like, well, I went to the top every time, but I didn't do it any of the times, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's, yeah, that's awesome that, you know, your parents are like invested and connected with you in that way. I'm sure it's like deepened your guys' relationship and ways that you didn't expect totally yeah yeah it really has and yeah i think they've never said as much but like i said they've always been so supportive of me but i i really felt that they latched onto the music okay you know yeah and i think on some level they were kind of bummed to see me step back from that and let that go a little bit and maybe have always been hopeful that i would come back to it you know 
but I feel that shifting and they're like, Oh, he's, he's serious about this. And, right. I mean, um, you're really doing something here. Yeah, yeah. 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 I feel that it's, yeah. it, um, I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited about it. So I wonder if they latched onto the music because like you could play it for them and you know, it was like an immediate sort of totally. And you see it impact other people too. Right. You know, it's just right. kind of music's powerful. Yeah. It's super powerful. I've played it a lot of, um, you know, I, I played at both my sister's weddings. Oh, cool. Wow. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I played, That's awesome. I played at, um, I think all of my grandparents funerals. All my grandparents have Holy passed smokes. away now. And wow. Yeah. It's powerful That's stuff. Amazing. You know? Yeah. So tell me about music a little bit. Like when did you get into it? What was the first, what were the first instruments that you picked up and like, did you start taking lessons or were you just did, like noodling yeah. or? Yeah. My parents put me in piano lessons when I was really little. Okay. How'd you like that? And I hated it, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I totally hated it. I think I didn't hate piano, but I hated practicing scales. I didn't like, you know, I didn't like classical music. I wasn't good enough to be playing anything super interesting as far as classical music goes anyway. Mm. And mm-hmm. Classical seems I don't hard. know what I wanted to play, but I, I liked plunking around and playing some stuff. But I remember, I think I did that for three years. Probably started around age six. Okay. Or so. Oh, okay. That's, that's early. And so then by nine, I think both my sisters had quit at that point. They both did it too. Okay. Piano also. Piano also, at least at first. And I was still in it and I just, you know, the injustice of that just <laughs> so unfair. Why do I have to keep doing this? And I remember telling my mom that I was going to cut my fingers off if she didn't let me quit. Wow. <laughs> so that finally did it. Oh, okay. She let me quit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm, I mean, in hindsight now, I'd love to study piano now. I think it's a mm-hmm. beautiful instrument. I kind of wish I'd been exposed to jazz mm. at a younger age. I think I would have enjoyed it more i think mm-hmm. it would have i just think jazz is amazing it's mm-hmm. such an amazing foundation mm-hmm. for for anything that you want to do with music really totally but yeah i studied that for a few years in junior high i was in band okay i played saxophone i don't know why i think i must have thought it was cool saxophone's pretty cool i don't know i did that for a few years so you took you took like a substantial break kind of from music after you quit piano or did you uh, keep playing? That was, cl- I mean, nine or 10, I probably quit piano. And then, you know, you're in junior high, oh, by okay. like 10 or 11. Right. So yeah, piano kind of went into saxophone, mm-hmm. but I always knew that I wanted to sing. I always okay. knew that I didn't resonate as much with those instruments. Right. There, it's, this is really strange to say, but Wenatchee High School choir at Wenatchee High School was actually a really popular thing. Oh, cool. It was really strange. Uh-huh. It was a pretty big school. And for whatever reason, it was like the cool thing to do. Nice. And I think part of it was that for whatever reason, the program had a bunch of money and every other year we would do, the choir would do a trip to Europe. And then on the in-between years, they would do something really cool and travel somewhere within the United States. And, uh, you know, like most teenage kids don't get to fly to Europe for a week and like go to cathedrals and do all sorts of cool stuff. So I think that was part of it, but I kind of because my sisters were older, because I'd been exposed to it through them, I knew that's what I wanted to pursue was more choir and vocal stuff. So yeah. Um, nice. Did that in high school. And you, you sung in the band, like in the school band. I don't, uh, I know like next to nothing about like, <laughs> I love that music. question. Yeah. It's fantastic. 
In the choir, yeah. In the choir, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I was Sorry. totally, I was wow. a totally geeky <laughs> choir kid, you know, like, but weird, but weirdly, like, kind of popular because of being the choir kid, which, you know. It's you, like contrary to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You watch like Glee or something and that like wasn't that dissimilar from my life. Cool. I was like, like by my senior year, I was the president of the choir. I was the section leader for the tenors. I was the lead in this quartet that you had to audition for. Like half of my day was choir stuff. Okay. I was a TA for a younger choir. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. I don't yeah. know. It was just cool. all, just a lot of music stuff. I so you were singing all the time. Singing all the time. Cool. Mm-hmm. Fun. Yeah. Did it get you dates? No. <laughs> I had a lot of girls tell me that, oh my God, this was so infuriating for me at the time. Or I just felt so de- dejected. They would say, oh, Stephen, I just, I just fell in love with your voice. I'm just in love with your voice. <laughs> <laughs> what about me oh. you know, uh, none of them said i fell in love with you no because of your voice they fell in love with my voice oh. yeah well Separate you're like entity. i'm gonna talk all the time so you get you'll get to hear it all the time <laughs> right yeah well it's okay yeah it's okay but now when you go to <laughs> Put bars and you sing karaoke oh i should do that more you often get lots of numbers do you think so i mean you'd pr- i'm sure that okay would work yeah i'll try it I haven't done karaoke in a long time. Did you have a, um, like, were your parents religious? Did you have, like, a... Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a big part of the music, too. I grew up in a a pretty conservative Christian home. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, conservative relative to secular upbringings. Right. But actually, as I think about it now, actually probably a little bit more liberal as far as Christianity goes. Mm-hmm. Music played a big role in that for me, too. I was pretty involved with, you know, worship teams and stuff like that okay. as a kid. Cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So then you left Wenatchee to go to college. Yeah, I went to Western Washington University okay. in Bellingham, Washington. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And I chose that. I chose that because of music. Cool. I don't think I had any big plans to study music. It actually, they actually have a pretty strong music program there, uh-huh. but it was more the scene. I was deciding between Bellingham and Montana State okay. in Bozeman. <clears throat> um, I, I didn't, I got into UW as well. I didn't want to go to a big city. I don't know why. I've just mm-hmm. always liked the kind of more laid back vibe and mm-hmm. Bellingham has a great vibe. Uh, and it had more of a music scene than Bozeman, you know, as far as like playing shows and being in a band and that sort of stuff. Cool. So I, I went there for that and I did start out doing a, a minor in music mm-hmm. as I was doing my general requirements. Mm-hmm. And I was also studying math just because I was always good at math. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually realized that math is totally worthless. <laughs> and you have no idea. The whole time I had no idea what we were talking about or how it would be relevant in the world. Right. Yeah. You're just like, I'm solving complicated math equations. I don't even know. I was satisfying. Totally. I was an engineer for seven years and like, I maybe did some addition and subtraction, you know? (laughs) But most of it was like automated with computer. Totally. That's what computers are for. Yeah. So yeah, I was studying music and then I got really interested in music theory and composition Mm -hmm. and I couldn't take the upper division music theory without declaring a major. So I did. Okay. And I actually ended up doing a double major in... Uh, a bachelor of arts in music and then engineering cool yeah which is a really difficult combo to 
right schedule pretty like opposing yeah yeah god my schedule was always just chaos really different classes back to back i imagine yeah just yeah. running all over the campus all the time right well good job with that <laughs> thank you <laughs> that sounds like a lot of stressful work but um and so did you play in bands and stuff too yeah so my freshman year i met a group of guys and we started playing together i think in the dorms initially oh nice and, and i ended up living with the band in a house for like three years rad yeah it was it was like kind of the classic college thing we had a <laughs> we, we lived in a house with three units mm-hmm. and we lived in the middle and one of the rooms was a converted garage mm-hmm. so it was gigantic nice and two of us slept in there and we had like a full drum kit and we had three <laughs> guitar amps and a bass amp we had like Wow. We had, my roommate bought these tool racks, you know, for like shovels and stuff and hung them on the walls. And I think we had like 13 guitars hanging on the walls. Holy smokes. We were just always playing all the time. Sounds fun. Luckily our upstairs and downstairs neighbors were friends and just banged on the ceiling with a broom if we were staying up too late playing. But yeah, yeah, we, we, we were, we were a decent band, I think, but we were super lazy. Okay. You know, in like three years of playing together, I think we played like maybe... Maybe a dozen shows. That's pretty good, though. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you got lots of practice. So now <laughs> is your preferred instrument guitar? I mean, yeah, besides so, your voice. Right. So yeah. I, I picked up guitar to kind of accompany myself, and then I actually did focus on classical guitar in college for a little bit. Okay. But I don't know. It's I just got to play a little bit intensely, but I hardly ever play anymore. Right. Just because it did after, col- like after college, did the music thing fizzle out of it? It did, and like in climbing... You know, I, I climbed for the first time when I was 18 mm-hmm. yeah, over the summer. A friend of mine took me out to well, Wait a minute. I thought the first time you climbed was in Wenatchee at an airplane. Ah, oh, damn, you're right. <laughs> you're totally right. I did. I went, I was lamenting this the other day. I went to a birthday party when I was like, who knows, 10 years old or something. And there was this really cool old climbing wall in this airport hangar out at Pangborn Airport. It's like outskirts of Wenatchee, East Wenatchee. So you, it's probably 30 minute drive from my house. And I remember loving it, but had no concept of rock climbing. You know, right. I didn't know that like it was something that you could do. It was like a, it's like going to a go-kart place right. for someone's birthday. So it was the gen, the climbing wall was sort of set up for like birthday parties and stuff. It was, yeah. I think it was actually an okay gym. But, oh, okay. Like, so I just, there were members and like I think community so. and stuff. But I didn't know that you could like go back. Right. You, you were like, you weren't like, oh, this is something to do. Totally. You were like, this is just like an activity at a birthday party. Exactly. That I really yeah. Liked. yeah. Yeah. And I think if I'd stuck with it, I'd be a very different climber. Than <laughs> so that's okay. Well, so you, you got good at music. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that and, and finished college and stuff. And finished those college are, those are valuable things, <laughs> valuable endeavors. Unfortunately, that airport hangar gym didn't survive. I think it was a little bit too early i think mm. it was like a little bit ahead mm-hmm. of the curve and mm-hmm. there's an awesome gym in Wenatchee now but okay that came much later but yeah so the second time i climbed and the first <laughs> time i rock climbed okay was in leavenworth over the summer when i was 18 before going to college okay a friend of mine took me out there and i just remember like getting so pumped on this i think we were trying like a v1 traverse oh okay yeah. you went bouldering yeah i went bouldering nice i don't think i did it yeah i think i maybe did the v0 <laughs> didn't do the v1 cool my friend was like there's people he went to western he's like there's people at the climbing gym at western 
the Boulder V9. Whoa. And we're like, whoa. And he's oh like, we're like, what would that be like? And he'd be like, it's like going from this. And he grabbed like a tiny little foothold on the wall. And he's like, <laughs> it'd be like going from this to this. And he reached like six feet over to the right. And, grabbed another <laughs> foothold. and we're like, oh my God, crazy. <clears throat> Maybe he was right. Yeah, it may be. Yeah. I need to go back to that boulder. So your first rock climbing experience, which was basically your first climbing experience in your adult life, was bouldering in Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. And I, so going to Western, I knew that I was interested yeah. in that from that point on. Did you, had you done, had you done more days that summer or was it in like, I think just that, that one. Yeah. yeah. I think just the one. And then some friends in the dorm were into bouldering. We'd go boulder at the gym. It was a terrible gym. It was mm-hmm. like in the student rec center mm. and it totally built for aesthetics. You know, it was like the fake rock, like the entrepreneur oh, and print panels uh-huh. and like the right. featured rock and stuff. Right. And I ended up actually working there as a root setter for like four years. Oh, wow. And the biggest hold you could put on the wall was like, you know, three inches by like two and a half inches. <laughs> greasy there were no like... big giant triangular volumes. No. <laughs> no. Right. It was like all those like old school. Totally. Rounded shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Super Tiny little doorknobs and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Slippery feet, which I think like, I think it served me in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you learned how to climb on kind of bad holds. Yeah. 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 Slippery bad Stand holds. on my feet, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. It was, I think I, uh realized years later that my fingers were like as far as like steep climbing and hanging mm-hmm. on your fingers mm-hmm. my fingers were super weak because of that like i you know the first time i climbed on like a 40 degree wall i was like oh my god <laughs> you're like this is different <laughs> i can't do this so like i said i got a job as a root setter there yeah um the first year there i think i just like dabbled and climbed from time to time and then i remember a friend of mine worked at the front desk for the rec center and the manager of the front desk also managed the rock wall. And okay. so she put in a good word for me and got oh, me a nice. job. And I was like so underqualified, dude. I like to root set, to like be someone that works at a rock climbing wall in any capacity. Sounds about I right. Could, though, yeah, totally. I could like, like today's barely scene. put a harness on correctly. And before I knew it, I was like teaching classes and root setting and uh-huh, just, and uh-huh. just climbing, just living there all the time. You nice. Know? So that was kind of like your upbringing, like your start. That changed climbing. everything. Yeah. That changed yeah. everything. And di- and were you like going on trips more or less immediately or did it take a while to like it, it, think it, about outdoor rock climbing trips? Uh, you, good question. You know what? A friend of mine, this was actually just a few months after I started working there, I think. So school season starts in September. Mm-hmm. Got the job in September or October. And then I think it was like leading up to Christmas that year that someone was like, we should go to Bishop. My friend Ruthie, she's oh, like, wow. we should go to Bishop. I was like, what is Bishop? She's like, we should go on a bouldering trip to Bishop. Nice. I was like, in December? What are you talking about? <laughs> so yeah, over Christmas break. Oh, and this, nice. this ended up becoming this like yearly tradition for the next six years. I take this like yearly pilgrimage down to Bishop. I feel yeah. like a lot of like young <laughs> Super climber <original> groups <laughs> have a yearly tradition of going to Bishop uh-huh. over Christmas break. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I've been there over Christmas break too. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're one of your first like outdoor rock climbing trips was to Bishop. That was probably it. That was probably my first climbing trip. Cool. And I think I climbed like Funky Tut. Nice. Yeah. I think that was Funky I, Tut's I, good. I climbed like a V3. I think I climbed, I remember climbing the hunk. Oh you yeah, climb that. Yeah, like, the hunk my, is tall. It might be like the best V two. It's amazing on the planet. Yeah, yeah, and it's tall. It's like just it's badass. Beautiful. You top out and you have like the best view ever. Yeah. It's like a king king lion. Yeah, yeah, buttermilk. Yeah, yeah. if you climb V two, it's like 
a big deal. It's it's like the, the sickest V2 probably in the world or something. Totally, yeah. yeah. And I remember doing that and just just kind of being like, this is the thing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like rock climbing. Rock climbing is yeah. the thing, yeah. yeah. Nice. I just remember pretty quickly having a, a psych and like a drive and a, a connection to rock climbing that felt really different from anything that I'd ever had before. And it really shined a light on what I didn't have with music. Mm-hmm. With music, I think a big part of the reason why I studied it in college was because I knew that I wasn't, I had never worked hard enough at music to really see my potential. Mm. And for whatever reason, that was, I wanted to explore that. Mm-hmm. That's always been a part of my personality. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah I, yeah, I don't know where that comes from, but I wanted that with music, but I didn't have, I wasn't intrinsically driven to mm-hmm. do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And like one of my best friends, he had that he would he'd sit in his room and practice guitar for like eight hours a day right just because he wanted to right and i wanted to want that right but i did i didn't right and climbing showed me that i was like oh i i'm thinking about like eating differently and i'm going running and i I don't think these things are necessarily good ways to get better at climbing now but at the time i was like i'm willing to like do all this stuff to get better at climbing and you had a purpose all of a sudden yeah Yeah. and and i i just wanted it and it didn't feel like work you know Mm -hmm. And with music, I studied it because I needed an excuse. I needed external right. you you know, needed accountability. Yeah. I needed to push. Yeah. And it worked, but then ultimately it did burn me out. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't like your your biggest passion in the end. Right. Yeah. Right. Cool. What's really fun now is it's kind of coming back. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can see kind of a different path for it. I don't know what it's going to lead to yet, but something that happened with music is that like creating music in a band was a lot more satisfying than like being a singer songwriter and playing folk music. Mm-hmm. I liked the music better. Mm-hmm. It was more interesting to me, mm-hmm. but that's logistically really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once you leave college, you know, you either go way out of your way to find another, another band. And then, you know, it's really difficult to find people that align with your artistic vision and have a similar complementary skill set. you know, that I sort of stuff. I can imagine that. Yeah. And I didn't really want to write folk music or singer-songwriter music, and I wasn't listening to that sort of stuff. I was mm-hmm. like getting more interested in hip-hop and like R&B and stuff like that. And you can't make that by yourself, I right. thought. Right, right. So I've, I really went away from music. And now I'm and now I'm kind of realizing, like, man, if you have a, a MacBook Pro and like a decent program, you know, somewhat decent microphone that's not all that expensive, you can make amazing music in your van. Totally. So nice. Yeah. So I'm kind you, of fired up. You're, you're, you're curious again. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, again. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll see what it leads to. I'm excited to see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. I think that's my next, my next big purchase is a, like a MIDI keyboard. Sick. Yeah. For the van. I'm sure you'll have some fun tinkering totally. ahead of you. Yeah. Cool. So you go to Bishop, you're working at the climbing wall. And then what kind of propels you? I mean, so you're, you know, you're studying music in college. You're in a band. You're also working at the, at the climbing wall. Mm-hmm. And I presume you're like taking trips here and there, right? Yeah. The weather in Bellingham is really brutal. It's rainy nine months of the year. Okay. And then it's awesome three months a year, but I would leave and I would go to Leavenworth. So I like <laughs> missed the one awesome season. Gotcha. <clears throat> but yeah, the, I would, um, I would do those occasional trips. I would do the Bishop trip. We'd mm-hmm. do like occasional weekends mm-hmm. in Squamish. Mm-hmm. Actually, not not that many trips to Squamish now that I think about it. But 
gold bar and index are really close. Mm-hmm. So I'd go bouldering there. From Bellingham. From Bellingham. Mm-hmm. And then I spent all my summers either in Wenatchee or Leavenworth with the intent and focus of like climbing as much as I could in Leavenworth. Did you so, have summer jobs in those places or something? I did, yeah. yeah. I had yeah, when I was younger, when I was like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. I think each of those three summers I worked in the fruit warehouses. Oh, wow. Which is like a heinous job. It's like the job that your parents make you do so that you appreciate how crappy work can be so that you feel motivated to finish college. And get a good job yeah. or a, do- a job that isn't in a fruit warehouse. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And I mean, now it's it's really interesting because I look back on that and especially like with the with the civil rights movement that's happening right now, I look at that really differently and it's like, mm-hmm. it's kind of screwed up what happens in there, you know? Right. And I, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. So, you know, as a 16, 17, 18-year-old white kid with a high school education, I had so much privilege working there. Like, it's still kind of a heinous job, but, like, you get treated differently. Right. You know? And, gotcha. And I didn't think much about that until until later. Right. But Crazy. that was the kind of thing where you would just blitz it. You know, you'd work your ass off for, like, six weeks. Mm-hmm. And then have the rest of the summer off. What were you doing? Uh, the first year I had a few different jobs. The first year I just sorted cherries. Okay. Like a, a bunch of cherries come down a conveyor belt and you pick out the bad ones and you throw them in a black bin and you pick out the extra red ones and you put them in a red bin <laughs> and then the rest of them just go the full way down the conveyor belt. Wow. And then the next year, did you have to get like, did you have to be really fast at it? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And we were stressful. We were terrible. I mean, I remember like, playing a game with my friend <laughs> my friend leo he was on the opposite side of the conveyor belt and we would pretend to be like goalies and we'd be shooting the cherries into each other's bin but like blocking them with our hands <laughs> which is like exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing right <laughs> so we would do that for like 10 hours a day and then the next year i don't remember i had slightly more responsibility and then mm-hmm. the third year i ran this like massive half a million dollar sizing machine that would automatically divvy up all the cherries into different sizes. Okay. And then wow. I think that the second half of that season, I managed a, one of the lines as like an 18 year old kid or 17 year old right. kid, you know, right. you're like, Oh yeah, just what was the demographic or whatever of like most of the employees there? Um, all Hispanic. Okay. You know, probably 95% Hispanic Mexican right. immigrant workers who, you know, work seasonally. Right. And just kind of follow whatever fruit was in season or right. crops were in season. Right, right. And I, I remember wow. on the Rainier line, it was a smaller line for Rainier cherries. Um, I think like 15 people or something. And I was supervising that. And I think literally five of the people on the 15 person line were named Maria. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. But there was, yeah. It, I mean, what a sweet what a, as can be. Yeah. Kind of took care of me. I don't know why I was their supervisor, but right. you know, you got you had the privilege mm-hmm. of yeah. What a glimpse into that world. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And they what were a crazy. God, they work so hard. Yeah. You know, and they'd be working so hard not just for themselves, but for family back home, mm-hmm. whatever it may mm-hmm. be. Yeah. And they lived in Wenatchee, I guess, or like in Leavenworth or in yeah, yeah, yeah. surrounding areas, Quincy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that was that was the first few summers, and I would climb as much as I could after that. But mm-hmm. while you were doing that, that's all you were doing. Right. For and, six weeks, you would just go mm-hmm. do a whole load of work. And totally. Then, yeah. I, I think my last when you're you know when you're a minor, you have a limit. But the last couple of years, I think one year I remember 
averaging over 70 hours a week and like one work one week was like 93 hours or something goodness that's terrible it's terrible you know you're just like living there right (laughs) driving home not sleeping driving back wow i yeah I didn't eat cherries for a long time after that. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. But why. then the next few years were really fun. I worked for the Forest Service for three years. I worked on a trail crew for two years. This is while you're still in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Worked on a trail crew in Leavenworth and then worked on a fire crew. Okay. One year in Leavenworth and climbed after work as much as I could, climbed on my days off. Nice. Yeah. So cool. Leavenworth, Leavenworth was, when I think about like, my evolution as a climber, Leavenworth's like a huge piece of that, you know, for sure. I climbed Sounds my like first, it. I think with the exception of V6, I climbed my first V0 through V10 in Leavenworth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And did you make it up to V10 like before you finished college or was that like later on? It was the fall after I finished college. So you, you progressed a lot in the four years. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but like in a really... In like a really narrow direction, you know, like I got really good at like featurey squeeze climbing okay. in Leavenworth. And then I remember going to Joe's Valley on that same trip. I think it was the same year that I climbed that V10 and climbed a bunch of V7s, but I remember climbing on this like V5 and it was like a 40 or 45 degree overhanging wall. No tricks, no heel hooks, no bicycles, whatever, just straight pulling. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do it. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. So that was, it was just a style that you like, weren't used to at Mm -hmm. all. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And then I moved to Smith shortly after that. (laughs) And, and that really knocked me back a few, a few grades, you know, Smith will do that. Yeah. 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 So cool. Um, Actually, I guess I skipped a, a step there. My last season in Bellingham, my last summer there, I graduated in June and I think that April. So the last couple months of my school year, that was when I started sport climbing. Okay. There's a crag like an hour away from Bellingham called Equinox. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I've heard people say that. And me and my friend Will, just for whatever reason, we were both just mostly gym boulders, but we just got psyched at the same time. And we were climbing on the exact same stuff. It was like the per- he was the perfect person at the perfect time. And we just fed off of each other. And that think, can really propel, propel your yeah. climbing. Yeah. Having someone like that. I think I like that. Totally. I think I had climbed like V9, but I, I think I red pointed like my first 11, five, eleven. Oh, wow. That's so funny. (laughs) That season. Classic. Totally. Yeah. Classic trajectory. I I didn't know how, you know, I didn't know how to relax. I didn't know how I couldn't like recover on a jug. Uh, but I climbed, I think my first five eleven B that was the warm up climb there. And it took like many tries (laughs) and then, and you would climb V9. Totally. Oh my God. And then that April, I climbed my first 12A, and then by August, I'd climbed my first 13A. Wow. 12A, B, C, D, wow. 13A. So yeah. you just had to, like, figure out sport climbing yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I just had to figure it out. And then when it clicked, I just, I was so psyched, man. I loved it. I loved bouldering, but I always cared a lot about climbing well. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about it, actually, but I wanted to, like, I wanted climbing to feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to mm-hmm. feel... I loved the process of taking something that was a struggle, mm-hmm. something that felt ugly and hard mm-hmm. and refining it until it felt graceful mm-hmm. and beautiful and like executing it in that way. Mm-hmm. And I really f- focused on that and pr- 
probably put like a lot of my identity in the way that I climbed. Mm-hmm. And then I'd like see all these gym thugs just like bro through stuff and like climb harder than me. And it always pissed me off, man. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, your feet were cutting all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like you're just swinging around, you know? <laughs> and it kind of like, it kind of irritated me and I didn't, it's funny because like now I'm just trying to learn how to be a thug like everybody else. I think that like really served me really well. And I think that kind of just get scrappy. Super cool. Yeah. I think it's super cool to be able to just get scrappy and try hard. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time I felt like I was putting so much work into becoming a good climber and into, you know, thinking about movement economy and Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. moving well. And that's a different sort of mindset. I feel like for someone breaking into five twelve and five thirteen. It like, when I started sport climbing, it felt like, oh, that focusing on that actually serves me here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I really love that. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, if I climb well and efficiently yeah. and I care about that, yeah, that's a huge advantage. Yeah, for sure. You know, you can't thug your way up a whatever. Yeah. You know, you can't, 13, you can't thug your way up you. anything that's like super duper hard for you. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's like actually not that hard for you. Right. Right. But if it's a three-move boulder problem, you can. Right, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, and but then so I so Equinox 13A, like, phew, right? And I, I think like, I think Equinox is a pretty hard crag. I think that thirteen A was like a pretty solid one. But then I went to Smith, and it took me a full year of climbing at Smith to get back to thirteen A. Mm-hmm. Like that, that really showed me like, oh wow, I just like couldn't hold on very long. Mm. You know, when I really had to hold on to holds, mm. I'd done a lot of squeezy climbing, a lot mm-hmm. of feature climbing. Mm-hmm. I could really, I've always had like an athletic build. I could use my body to, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I could come up with creative ways to get around the parts where you had to pull with your fingers. Mm-hmm. But then at Smith, you can't do that. There's no getting around pulling <laughs> yeah. with your fingers. Yeah. yeah it's it, all in your fingers totally. and your toes. And yeah. it took a lot of time to adapt right. to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. So after you graduated college, you got the job with Entrepreneur or, or oh, yeah. not right away? Um, Was there, is there another phase in, the, in between there? I graduated and I was psyched on living out of my car. Okay. So I lived you did in my that. Subaru for six months. Okay. Super privilege. I don't even know how I had enough money to do that. You know, I'd been working at the climbing wall. I had an internship at a, a company that made outdoor rescue equipment. Okay. Climbing rescue equipment. That was super fun. But I didn't have to pay off student loans. I think that was the biggest thing. Okay. So I had some cash in my pocket. I was able to travel. Cool. And I did that for, I think, six months from when I graduated in June till January. Mm-hmm. Six or seven months. And it was awesome. Where'd you go? Um, I stuck around Bellingham and focused on Equinox for a couple okay. months. Funny. Yeah. I was psyched. <laughs> yeah. I was super psyched. I'd like discovered this thing, you know, it's kind of like discovering Leavenworth after I left Wenatchee. It was like, damn, I just discovered this amazing cliff, like right when it was time to leave Bellingham. And I was like, I'm not ready to leave yet. Yeah. So I stuck around there until I did that 13A. That was kind of like the big one I wanted to do. Cool. And then I went to 10 Sleep really briefly. Uh-huh. I think it, this was like 2012. So 10 Sleep wasn't really that, that on the map yet. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think it had just been published in Rock and Ice for the first time. Okay. I was like, that is beautiful. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. And, oh, here's what it was. I had been following Climbstrong for oh, okay. a while. And I'd been reading Steve Bechtel's blog. Okay. I think at the time it was just a blog. Yeah. 
my friend Emma Myers turned me on to it. <clears throat> Shout out. <laughs> and uh, they posted that they were going to do that training camp. Yep. And you went to the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So I signed up for that. And that must have been like late August or early September or something like that. And 10 Sleep was nearby. So I was like, oh, cool. I'll go to 10 Sleep. I remember like, you know, you drive for like 15 hours or something. Rolling to 10 Sleep. I'm all psyched. And it's like 10 Sleep, population 210. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. I don't know anyone here. Mm -hmm. This is not going to work out. I did get to, to climb a little bit, but it's not like today. You know, you can't, right. you can't go to it, the rock range it was way and like fewer people. meet people. So yeah. I like, I remember driving up the canyon until I found a car with Colorado plates and like some bumper stickers and I like ran up the trail and I found these guys and they were done climbing, but we like went out for a beer and they kind of gave me some beta. Okay. So I climbed for a few days. Then I went to Lander. Okay. Did the training camp. Okay. Met Steve. Hung out there for, I think three weeks. Just climbed a bunch at Wild Iris. And then went to Joe's Valley, realized that I couldn't climb V5 <laughs> on overhanging terrain. And then went back to Leavenworth, climbed that V10. That was super fun. Made a really, <laughs> actually, my brother-in-law came out that day. He's a professional photographer. Oh, cool. And made a really cool video. Oh, nice. Of that climb. It's Sick. called Superman. Oh, cool. Um, I want to, I want to watch that. I'll link to it. Okay, it's, cool. I'm still like really psyched on that video. Rad. It's, it's he's a really artistic guy and he just made a, He's not a, that much of a climber, so he made a different kind of climbing film than you're used to. Cool. And it turned out really cool. Nice. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, and then I probably hung out there till Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Came through Bend briefly. So my growing up, uh, my dad, he had spent time in Bend, Oregon as a teenager. Mm. And every once in a while it would come up. I'd never been there. Okay. And every once in a while it would come up. And he would just talk about Bend and there's just like this gleam in his eye, you know, like all these fond memories. And I didn't know why, but it was always kind of this like magical place in my head. And leaving Bellingham, I was like, I don't want to stay here. The weather's just brutal, dude. I thought I would get used to it, but it just got harder every year. And I definitely suffered from seasonal affective disorder and just needed to escape the rain. And I loved the climate in Wenatchee, but I didn't really want to move back there. I wanted to kind of branch out and try something new. And Bend was kind of seemed like a combination of those things. It was like the culture and artistic side of Bellingham to some degree, but then the climate that I loved and then Smith Rock. Mm -hmm. And I'd never been to Smith. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I hope I like it. <laughs> I really hope I like it. I think I will. So I went through Bend briefly on that trip. I went to Smith one day, didn't climb. It was I've never seen a day like this at Smith since in seven years, but it was like super socked in. Hmm. I pulled up and you couldn't even see picnic lunch wall wow. in the parking lot. Uh huh. And I'd like, I hiked down, hiked across the bridge and was just like, okay, left or right. And I picked, wow. I picked right. What a day to show up at Smith totally. for the first time. And I hiked the entire misery Ridge loop mm -hmm. my first time there. <laughs> and like, you, you can't see any rock climbs, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, if you hike, if you go to Smith and you hike the misery Ridge loop, you don't see that much of the the main area right. until the very end. After you go over Asterix Pass or whatever and Tot come back through. I went all the way around the, right. the southern tip. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I like went over the top and then I saw Monkey Face and I was like, I think that's Monkey Face. You could barely see it through <laughs> the gloom. And I was like, oh, that's really funny. That I guess is cool. And then hiking along the back, I was like, oh, there's some chalk. 
And I had had a bunch of friends go to Smith for spring break and like kind of say mixed things about it, you know, mm-hmm. probably because they climbed like five tens in the sun and didn't use thick lips, mm-hmm. but <laughs> they didn't sound that psyched. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I kind of get it. Like there's not that many roots here mm-hmm. or they kind of spread That's out. so funny. And then I finally came around the Southern tip and like saw the dihedrals and the uh-huh. Christian brothers. And the, right, right, right. And I was like, running up and down all the stairs like nice what what is that that looks cool that looks sweet i remember going up to darkness at noon and heinous clay Uh uh-huh and i was like i don't care what these are i'm i have to do them fuck yeah i have to do these climbs fuck yeah so i was super psyched on it i interviewed at entrepreneur like a couple days later oh wow um i went and visited ventolius they're based there too Mm -hmm. they didn't have a open spot for me but cool to meet more people Mm kind of like gave them my resume you Mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. hit me up if you have an opening Mm -hmm. and then i went to bishop and i spent six weeks in bishop and i was just kind it had only been six months but i was just kind of feeling like okay i'm climbing this was my dream i'm living the dream what the hell am i doing with my life i wasn't getting that much better at climbing Mm. it's hard to i was probably climbing too much Mm. You know, it's hard to pass rest days mm-hmm. when you're living in your car and, and climbing and you mm-hmm. have nothing else going on. Right, I felt sure. totally void of purpose. I was just like, wow, this is so self-serving. I'm spending all this time climbing for myself. I'm slowly running out of money or not so slowly running out of money. <laughs> uh, I feel tweaked all the time. I climbed a lot of V8s in Bishop. I was really trying to har- climb harder than that, but I couldn't break new ground at all. And I was talking to Entrepreneur the whole time. And and finally, they yeah they, they gave me an offer. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't want anything more than, like, routine and a gym to train at mm-hmm. and a job and, like, some sort of purpose, some sort of community, something. Mm-hmm. Like, I needed, like, an anchor at that time. So that January, I ended my trip and moved to Bend. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Started making climbing holds. <laughs> Oh, that's what you were doing for them? Yeah, they had been outsourcing their climbing hold production, and they hired me to figure out how to make them in-house. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I had an engineering background or engineering degree, no experience at all. <laughs> I figured out how to how to make climbing holds for them. Cool. And kind of built up a an in-house manufacturing process cool. for them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Rad. I, you would think so. Yeah. I like, I remember th- really thinking it was my dream job and. Right. You're like, I'm working for a climbing company. Totally. In I Bend. made it. Yeah. 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 I get to make cool shapes. You yeah. know, I thought it would be awesome. Did you shape holds? A little bit. Okay. Not that much. And I was so, so I had come from a climbing gym, like I said, where like you couldn't put more than a three inch square hold on the wall. It right. was too featured. They'd right. break, you know? So I had no idea what was going on with climbing holds, with mm. indoor climbing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about volumes. I didn't know about like cool big shapes. I didn't know that you could make like four inch wide holds <laughs> or like six inch wide holds. Mm-hmm. So I just made like tweaky Smith inspired <laughs> fucked up little crimp pocket things that no one wanted to climb on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Didn't do much shaping, but, uh, but it kind of sucked working there. Okay. It was kind of like a... Yeah, I, there weren't really any any perks to it. It didn't it didn't pay well, which wasn't important to me. But it also it wasn't a climbing culture at all. It was kind of like a pretty like old school construction culture. Oh uh, yeah. And 
the physical environment of the place was pretty rough. You're mm-hmm. just like breathing mm-hmm. chemicals all day. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really that conducive to climbing. It wasn't really a flexible schedule. They, gotcha. didn't, they didn't really get the whole live to climb thing. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I stayed for a year and a half. And then okay. I actually got a job at an airplane manufacturer. Oh, that's right. And stayed there for five and a half years for the rest of my time in Bend. And okay. I care way less about airplanes. Right. Way, like so much less about airplanes than I do about climbing. But it was just a better job. But it was job. a way better job. Yeah. <laughs> it was a way better job. Right. Yeah. I had a really great boss there and really good people. And that makes, it turns out that makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. So you were in Bend for seven years. Yeah, almost exactly. You were just climbing at Smith Rocks. Totally. In the winters, like in the, or in the shoulder seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, weekends in the fall, mm-hmm. some weekends in the winter, and then spring's really nice because the days are long. Yeah. So spring yeah. was kind of the big season. I uh, I noticed on The Adventures of Sloth that you mentioned that <laughs> spring is your favorite season. Okay. And I think it's my favorite season too. Really? Yeah. 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 I love it, man. Steven has a an old blog called The Adventures of Sloth. Did you look at it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I Does read some posts. Does it still exist? Yeah, it's still online. Wow, man. Yeah, you can... I mean, I think your last post was from, like, 2016, mm. like, March 2016 or something. Okay. But I, I went a little ways back, and I watched, like, a silly cross-country ski video that you made, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and I read some some posts from Smith and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it was cool. That'd be fun. Yeah. I it was kind of like a super... Down memory lane. It was, like, a very, you know mid like late teen 2000s like blog sort of website where it's like hey guys haven't posted in a while but you know this is what i've been up to here's an update like you know it's fall now the season's starting here are my pro it's it was you know it was cool yeah it was i was like oh i remember when people were doing this but your yours it looked like you you know you had some fun photos and some stories and stuff i've always liked writing yeah you're good i didn't know that until I didn't know that until I was in my mid twenties, but yeah, I read, I, I read the post that you talked about your very unexciting 25th birthday where okay. you like got sick and went to bed super early <laughs> okay. and you were sort you like for like half a paragraph, you lamented exiting your early twenties. Okay. And, you know how that felt a little bit consequential, but it was kind of like, whatever, That's so like funny. you didn't really think much about it. Uh huh. I feel like everyone though, turning 25 is a little bit like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like I'm entering a new phase of life now, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I did feel that. You know, you're like, okay, I can't really claim kid status anymore Mm-mm. or adolescence anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I should probably try to be an adult or figure out what that's all about <laughs> in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I thought funny. that for a while too, and then I just gave up on that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I feel younger now than I did then probably. So Equinox shaped your climbing a lot, it sounds like, and then obviously Smith too, because you know you were there for seven years, and that was like your local crag. And I'm, I yeah. presume you went on climbing trips other places, like you probably went to the Red. And I didn't do much, oh, okay. man. I really did. Mostly Smith, stuck it was, to Bend. It was really Smith for a long time. Cool. And it wasn't because I thought Smith was the best thing ever. I love Smith, but it's very one-dimensional, mm-hmm. and I was yeah. always very aware of that. Yeah, and right. it's not always Type One. It's like very often not type one, you know? Right. But type one fun. Type one fun. I was really interested in... It's kind of a savage style. It's pretty savage. Yeah. yeah. For those of you who haven't been to Smith before, it's pretty much all vertical or less than vertical 
there's some overhangs like there are even a couple short severe overhangs but mostly it's like the harder stuff is vertical or slightly overhanging Mm -hmm. and the holds are very small the feet are very bad and they're often like long sequences with small sharp holds Mm -hmm. and really small tweaky pockets yeah not much room for error no yeah a very precise committing style of climbing my friend ryan palo says it's like eating your vegetables it is like eating vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. With maybe a little bit of sand in them or something. <laughs> no, I actually love Smith. I love yeah. that style. Yeah. No, I love it too, man. But, you know, I was, the whole time that I lived there, I was definitely in the grind. Mm-hmm. And I was willing to do that. I, I very much identify as a, as a climber. The whole time I was working in Bend, climbing was first. Mm-hmm. And I, th- this is the way I thought about it. Climbing was first. And then my full-time job was what I did like on the side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even though the, the timing and energy mm-hmm. didn't reflect mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But that's how I thought of it. But I was working jobs where I got two weeks off a year and I couldn't take two weeks from, at least from the airplane place. Right. Of course. I couldn't take a two week chunk. I could take like one week in the spring, one week in the fall. Wow. So I really didn't travel much. And usually right. I would like split one of those weeks up into like long weekends here and there. Right. So I did some trips to Little Sai up in Washington. I traveled to Leavenworth sometimes. I made like one trip to the red for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, the last few years, I've made a couple trips to rifle for a week each. Okay. And not much more than that. Like really not a ton of traveling, yeah. mostly yeah. climbing at Smith. And I remember kind of having the mindset that, you know, the grind is not conducive to actually climbing outside a lot and doing trips and things like that, but it, yeah. it is very conducive to training. Right. I definitely... I mean, you can see just from looking around the van or from listening to the podcast. Like, I'm like a very engineer, you know, oriented mind. And I I love structure. I thrive off structure and routine and that sort of stuff. And having a full-time job was really conducive for that. It was really Mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. Like, I could plan my training around it. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I thought was going to make me the best climber I could be. I have a post here from... The Adventures of Sloth from January 24th, 2016. I think it was one of your last posts. Okay. And it was titled Grinding. Ah. And in this post, you said, At this point, I spend much of the winter and summer training indoors and in large part have chosen to prioritize training and long-term improvement over climbing outside all the time. In essence, I'd rather train my ass off to climb 514 or even 514 plus someday then climb a few extra 512s this year or next. Hmm. <clears throat> That's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which feels like sort of the opposite of kind of how you approach it now. Of my last Instagram of post. Of your last Instagram <laughs> post, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right, man. I've changed my tune for sure. Because I tried that for a really long time and it didn't work that well. Mm. I, I mean, I was, I went deep into yeah. training yeah yeah i i, I know yeah, yeah I, you know way more about it than i do <laughs> <laughs> i remember i mean the first big thing i went to that training camp with steve mm-hmm. that was super informative and i don't really remember what my training looked like at that time or what i took from that directly but it it just got me fired up i think shortly after that i started implementing some weightlifting into my routine mm-hmm. but it was really the rock prodigy or the rock climbers training manual the mark and mike anderson book that was the first thing that i really went all in on mm-hmm. as far as like a training program mm-hmm. i think a lot of people did <clears throat> yeah and because it's an amazing book yeah and i think it was because of my friend ryan palo mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I remember watching a video of him climbing, just do it before I moved to bend. And I met him in the climbing gym and I was like, Hey, are you Ryan? Congratulations. You know, he just sent it like the previous spring or something when I moved there. And and that's how he got that strong Mm -hmm. was following their program. Mm -hmm. They hadn't written the book yet, but he followed the, the rock prodigy program was right. Cause they was like in blogs and totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to be as strong as Ryan Palo was. So I did what he did. And, but you know, it's, it's interesting. I'd never, I did their program for probably like three or four years mm-hmm. and I never did the program to a T cause mm. it's really designed to be done in four cycles a year. Like it's each block is like three months. Oh, wow. You know, it's right. like you arc and then you hangboard and then you do bouldering or canvas boarding and then you do power endurance and then you crush a bunch of things and then you take a week off and then you do it again. So that's kind of how you have to like structure your year, your season or to, whatever. To really follow it to a right, T. That's right. how you do it. But it just, you know, so those guys, Mike and Mark, they would schedule a three-week trip every three months and go crush a bunch of stuff or climb locally. They live in Colorado. They have access to a, a much wider range of rock climbing than I did at Smith. And like you said earlier, Smith is shoulder season. So I tweaked the program and I would do these like massive... I would do these massive, like three month long training blocks of just the training mm-hmm. in the summer and winter mm-hmm. and target the spring and fall for performance. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would spend like for like three summers in a row, I did this, I would spend like two or three months just hangboarding. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting so clever about like, I'm going to do this protocol for a month and then I'm going to deload and then I'm going to switch to this and then mm-hmm. switch to this. And mm-hmm. I was, I had all this rationale for why I was doing everything. <laughs> But for multiple summers in a row, I would hangboard for like an hour and a half every third day. And if it fell on a weekday, I would wake up at four in the morning to get good conditions and hangboard before work. Because I was like, no one else is willing to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, this is going to be the thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it didn't work that well. <laughs> like, I would get stronger in the summer mm-hmm. and then I'd feel really clunky and then by the later part of the fall, I'd feel like I knew how to rock climb again. Right. And I'd like climb some stuff. Okay. But then by the time I went back to training, I didn't understand maintenance. You know, I wasn't like maintaining my strength very well. And Smith, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know if Smith is the best area for like keeping you strong, especially if you like, for me, I've always focused on refining beta, making things as easy as possible. And when that's your strategy, you don't stay that strong from just rock climbing. Right. Well, especially at Smith where it's like pretty much just fingers and toes. Totally. Yeah. And like a little bit of forearm pump. Totally. Yeah. You kind of need like some steeper terrain and stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I had several years where I would just kind of like oscillate between strong and like good at climbing and just go back and forth and back and forth. Right. And just didn't really, I would make steady progress each year, but. So do you think that like your training was kind of ahead of your. I don't know, your like ability or whatever, like on rock or something, or, or would you just train, were you training too much or? Yeah. I, th- I think, I think I was doing e- the same thing for too long period. Too totally. Long period I, I think I, for like three or four years, I think I cycled between training too much and then not enough. Okay. In these yeah, like right. four to five month blocks. Right. So, cause you said there was not enough maintenance yeah. incorporated into the like outdoor climbing phase yeah yeah you know i just go climb at smith for three months and not even like do a hard bouldering session in the gym or whatever right and i was never the person 
I always felt like I was just working so hard at training and not really getting that strong. I would mm-hmm. see so many dudes in the gym, like so many people in the gym at in Bend that didn't even necessarily climb outside or, or find it that interesting. Just climb circles around me, you mm-hmm. know, and they could like do, they could hang from one arm from a campus rung mm-hmm. and like do one arm pull-ups and stuff. Mm-hmm. I could never do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I still can't. Mm-hmm. So it was just the type of thing you were training. I think I was just, yeah, I was just making a lot of mistakes. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the questions from, let me see who it's from real quick. It's from Mike Doyle. Okay. He asks what the biggest mistake you've made in with regards to training is. <laughs> I feel like this is a good segue yeah. to answer Mike's question. I mean, it's hard for maybe... me to answer that because I've made so many, <laughs> man. I like... I get, I've gotten over stoker with that stuff. I just like, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm such a sucker for the silver bullet, you know, Mm -hmm. the magic bullet. Mm -hmm. Like what is the thing that's going to like make the difference? Mm -hmm. I think because I felt like I was working so hard for so long and just not getting much back for, for that investment and sacrifice. But I guess I would say like the biggest thing that I've learned is that no matter what you're doing in training, you carry your preferences and your tendencies with you. Mm-hmm. Whether you're doing fingerboard repeaters, whether you're bouldering in the gym or mm-hmm. whether you're climbing outside, if you're the person that tends to get all over Stoker and do too much, mm-hmm. you're going to do too much no matter what you're doing. You mm-hmm. have to fight against that tendency. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if you're someone who mm-hmm. struggles to push themselves, mm-hmm you're going to do the minimal amount or not enough Mm -hmm. or not push yourself enough in any Mm -hmm. of those things. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I've tried a lot of different things, but when I look back, I, there's patterns, you know, Mm -hmm. I always try, I've always tried to do too much. I've always tried to like Mm -hmm. push every single session Mm -hmm. to make progress Mm -hmm. and your body just doesn't work that way. Right. You need to, I heard Steve Bechtel say in his episode with you that, you know, kind of modern science is leaning towards like less load or like heavy loads, but less, like less time spent doing the thing. I don't know. What do you call that? Can you, yeah. Higher intensity, higher lower, intensity, lower volume, lower volume yeah. that, that sort of thing. Or, and just cycling things too, you know, like not every single session needs to, you don't need to hang with more weight or go harder than the one before. Right. You know? Right. It's, I mean, it, it's kind of, if you like zoom out, it's really obvious. It doesn't work that way. We'd all be climbing 516 if that's how it worked, right? Right. <laughs> if you just like trained and trained and trained. The <laughs> you same just got thing. better every yeah. single time. And, right. Yeah. You just, you just can't do that. So I guess the biggest mistake is like maybe it took me a really long time to recognize the patterns that were probably holding me back mm-hmm. and, and making a lot of my efforts kind of void, you know? Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's why I started doing this. That's a big part of why I started doing this because I was so into it and it just wasn't that working. It wasn't working that well. And I kept meeting people, all the best climbers I met, they just like weren't doing any of that stuff. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. What are people that mm-hmm. are climbing really well, like you, like what are people actually doing? And I wanted to go ask them. Mm-hmm. But you know, a, a thing that really clicked with me was I had three interviews in a row on this podcast, mm-hmm. Nathan Hadley, Ben Harrington, mm-hmm. and Paige Glasson. Mm-hmm. And they all have a really similar approach to their training mm-hmm. with their bouldering and how they go about a bouldering session. 
warm up really efficiently, skip the stuff that's kind of hard, jump to the thing that's like really, really hard mm. or your limit level. Mm-hmm. Do that first. A lot. Do that first. And then if you want, take a step back and like fill in, you know, do some of the stuff that's pretty hard later. Man, I just like can't help but think if I had skipped all the hangboarding and all the structure training, if I had just bouldered better mm-hmm. for six years in the mm-hmm. Ben Rock gym, mm-hmm. I'd be a completely different climber. Mm. I've always added junk mileage. Mm-hmm. I've always like... Just like gone until failure. Yeah. Or like, you know, work my way up to... If I want to climb V9 this day, I'm going to work my way up through from V1 to V9. Right. And I always get bogged down at V7. Right. And, you know, like two hours later, I haven't got to V9 yet. I'm right. Like, well, shit. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I did that. Because you're like falling at the last move of some V7. Over yeah, totally. And you're like too tired to try the V9. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, like the quality versus quantity thing. Okay. I think I've screwed that up for okay. a lot of my climbing career. So, all of you people out there who <laughs> want training advice, quality over quantity. Yeah. 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 And I think like. It gets confusing because, you know, I just I just made an Instagram post. We just alluded to it about how I see a lot of people getting sucked right. into projecting right. too early and like, right. you need to climb more routes. But even with that, it's still a quality thing. You're not going until you're like climbing like shit, you know? Right. You're, you're practicing climbing. Right. It's that mindset. Right. Like totally. getting a lot of mileage in that's quality practice. Mm-hmm. You have more questions, huh? I have a lot more questions. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okay, like, let's get I mean, to it. Let's answer questions. Okay. Well, Drew asked, Drew said that this is one of his favorite podcasts, and he... Ruana? Yep. Oh, thanks, Drew. Yeah. Drew Ruana. The Nugget is one of Drew Ruana's favorite podcasts. <laughs> and he asked what inspired you to start it. Okay. Yeah. You kind of touched on this earlier. I did, bit. yeah. Yeah. So, at the engineering job, I ended up working in a cubicle. At first I had a different job, but I ended up working in a cubicle and it was a really strange situation where it's kind of a startup and mm-hmm. they had a ton of money. They had mm-hmm. really good investors. Mm-hmm. So they made a ton of terrible decisions, business decisions. Mm-hmm. And they basically were anticipating a need for me mm-hmm. to be in this role that didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. And then we had all these delays kind of upstream of me mm-hmm. and my job. And so I kind of got put into this new role and then didn't really have anything to do mm. for a very long time. And so for a couple years, <laughs> for a couple years, I had a very cushy job and I was stuck in this cubicle eight hours a day and I just started absorbing information. I started listening to all the podcasts I could listen to. At first it was training, then I went down a really deep nutrition rabbit hole and then it was, you know, business stuff and I started daydreaming about escaping the grind and... Um, that ultimately led to, to now, but it was really Tim Ferriss's podcast. I, mm. I got really sucked into that. And Tim Ferriss, for those who haven't heard of him, he's an author, a New York, New York times bestseller, but he also hosts his own podcast and he, he is really geeked out on optimizing your performance in everything in life. So he'll talk to Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tony Robbins, Amanda Palmer, Neil Gaiman, you know, like artists, um, intellectuals, investors, startup people, entrepreneurs, whatever, you know, just people, experts in their field. And he is really trying to extract routines, habits, insights, like what can we learn from these people? And he started the podcast to take a break from writing books, but then he ultimately 
turned the first couple hundred conversations into a book called Tools of Titans. Mm. It's really awesome. It kind of reads like a playbook for life. Like you flip through it and you're like, I'm interested in physical performance. And there's like all these chapters that are basically conversations with guests about training or diet or whatever lifestyle stuff. And I was on a plane down to San Diego to do a week long training course for my job. And I was reading that book. I just got a Kindle and it was the first book I purchased on my Kindle. And I was reading it and it just kind of hit me like right away. I was like, this needs to exist for rock climbing. And I, I could, I could see what it would take to make that book happen. And I don't know why, but in that same moment, I knew that I could make the book or that I should make the book. Mm. You know, in that couple of years in the cubicle, I had all this curiosity about these things. I went so deep into reading about training. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd get way out into the weeds and we're not even like reading about rock climbing anymore, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then same thing with nutrition. I'm like reading about cellular metabolism mm-hmm. and like the Krebs cycle and trying to figure out how many carbs to eat per day and mm-hmm. shit like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember just thinking like, for one, I'm not that interested in airplanes. So like, what does this mean? What does all this curiosity mean? Should mm-hmm. I become a coach? Should mm-hmm. I become a trainer? Do I need to go back to school for something? Should I become a teacher? Like that was kind of interesting to me. And I read that Tools of Titans book and it kind of like in the following moment, it kind of clicked like, oh, the curiosity is the thing. Mm -hmm. It's not pointing me towards something else that I should do. My role is to be Tim. Mm -hmm. I should be the one asking the questions. Mm Mm-hmm. And it like immediately resonated in a way that I'd, I'd kind of been like seeking, you know, for quite cool. a while. Like, what's the next thing? What do I want to do with my life sort of thing? Yeah. And it just kind of clicked in that moment. Like, oh, Amazing. I, I want to, I'm really curious about stuff. And I've made a lot of the mistakes that I think allow me to like ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I can like anticipate yeah. what people you are confused about. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the spark. Cool. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, yeah. Tools for Titans. Yeah, that's kind of where it started. And and I mean, I mentioned this before, like I tried a lot of training stuff and it didn't work that well. And yeah. I was really curious about what people were actually doing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find out. Yeah. yeah. And here we are. Here we are. So you had the idea for the podcast before you like quit the the job that you were Totally. In. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was in February of 2000. 19. Okay. So Pretty almost recently. exactly a year before I actually published the first podcast okay. episodes. Yeah. So that, that was the spark. And then it was just kind of germinating for that whole year. And I mean, furthermore, like, obviously if you listen to this show, it's not just about training. It's right. not just about getting better at rock climbing. Right, it's right, about right. like figuring out how to be a human, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like we're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. And our heroes are still trying to figure it out and totally. we all make mistakes. And yeah. I being stuck in that cubicle, I kind of struggled to find good community the whole time I was in Bend. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of amazing friends there, Yeah, but I never found like that friend family that right. you want to find, you know, like right. I, I didn't have like my people. I had great roommates. I love them. They're still really good friends, but, um, especially working at that job, I felt isolated and I listened to a ton of podcasts and somehow I just, I really think it's like a magical medium. Yeah. Like it really filled that, that void, you know, for sure. Listening to conversations, totally unrelated to climbing, Mm -hmm. listening to conversations between people 
getting to be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. for these like open, honest conversations. It just kind of like reconnects you to this critical part of being a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think in our culture, we're losing a lot of that. It's so interesting to me that our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And like now we live in this scroll co- culture where we like won't even read a three paragraph or a three sentence Instagram posts, you know, like I rarely finish your reading your entire post. I'm like, ah, too long. <laughs> I figure every time I do, I'm glad I, I do. So I should read them all. But that's the world that we're living in. And, mm-hmm. and at the same time, people will sit down and listen to a three hour conversation between Joe Rogan and some random person they've never heard of. Right. Or whatever podcast. Right. right. And I, I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. I think that really speaks to a need that isn't being met for most people. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, that's connecting people with a piece of humanity. So, yeah, that's awesome. It's a special thing for sure. Um, Next question. Next question. (laughs) So I, I sort of grouped most of the, well, I, I guess I only grouped two of the podcast related questions together, but Audrey Schneezik asks, what your the biggest challenge in producing a podcast is hmm yeah that's interesting um it's not that hard (laughs) (laughs) it seems like editing them is time consuming yeah that is probably that's maybe an answer i was gonna go with like um the logistics of of connecting with people sometimes but to be honest i've been blown away at how approachable people have been how easy it's been to connect with people that's been really cool probably the yeah probably the editing i edit differently than i think a lot of people do as far as like long form podcasts mm-hmm, go mm-hmm. i put a lot of time into it it's yeah. super tedious yeah. but i really think it makes a huge difference and for sure like there's a lot of things that happen when you're face to face with someone like right now i can like if i ask you a question i can tell that you're pausing to think but it's just radio silence. It sounds super awkward on right, audio. You know? Right. So you have to cut that out. Pull that out. and it, All it, my likes. <laughs> all my yes. I pulled out as many as I could. Your likes. Yeah, probably editing. Cool. Kind of a follow-up question from Ian Yurden of Bend, Oregon. Has the podcast influenced, influenced your climbing? How is it a drain and or a boon for your climbing? Like, mm. are you sending more? Since you started the podcast, that was like one of his follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the statistics on that? And, you know, when we went, when we hiked to, at some point in the last week, I've heard you say, editing podcast is not great for my climbing. Like, I'm sitting in front of a computer, you know, three days, at least three days a week. It's definitely not good for my hiking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Or maybe it's good for your climbing in the end, because no, you get so much information and like, right. I, well, I'll let you, you know. What do you think? No, right. That's, that is, I talked about this a little bit with Blake Kaysen on Mm. on the episode I did with her. When I started this, it was, I really hoped to be my own success story. Like I wanted to take all this advice and implement it and show people that like, you can make change. You can like, you can accomplish things you never imagined for yourself, whatever, you know? And that's been super hard. I definitely don't have the bandwidth to put everything into climbing. Mm -hmm. What's interesting though, is 
I'm way happier. Nice. Yeah. Having <laughs> Dude, something else. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so much happier, man. And, and I wouldn't trade that. I like, I don't think I'm climbing as, uh, the, the best I could be, um, because my energy is really divided. I spend a lot of time working on this and mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. There are some, there are some kind of like silver linings with it. I think it causes me to rest more than I otherwise would. Mm. You know, I take more work days mm-hmm. and less volume. My, yeah. My tendency is to do too much yeah. all the time. So and it's, I think it helps in that perfect. way. Yeah. But you know, I, it'd probably be better if I was like going on hikes and stretching and like, <laughs> instead of being on a computer for yeah, exactly. like eight hours a day. Totally. Yeah. Um, I think it has allowed me to have more, I can be really hard on myself Mm. and I think it's allowed me to have more grace with myself. I, I, this is like the first chapter in the last seven years where I haven't had a consistent training routine, even if it's really simple. I've always had something the last like four or five months. I'm like, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to work on the podcast. I'm going to climb because I enjoy it. I'm mm-hmm. going to try hard. Mm-hmm. I'm going to focus on like trying hard and mm-hmm. making the days count when mm-hmm. I do climb, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to train. Yeah. And that's okay for once. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel like, uh, in the past, that sort of thing has felt like I'm letting myself down. Right. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, it's good to learn how to be more forgiving of yourself. Yeah. Bill Ramsey asked... When interviewing famous climbers, how do you strike a balance between talking about the things they're famous for and therefore have already been covered and asking original questions that cover new ground? Mm. I love this question. I was the person that listened to all of the podcasts, all of the things. And it really frustrated me when I, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Segrist. He was the climber more than anybody that I that I really looked up to when I was, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was in college and that sort of thing. And, um, it was so frustrating to me when someone did a new interview with him and it was all the same stuff that I'd heard. And that's, that's really what drives that balance for me. I try to do my best to, you know, it's, it's hard in today's world. You can't get everything, you know, like when I'm interviewing someone like you, I can't, listen to all of the interviews that you've done. I can't watch all the videos, but I can, I can refresh myself on some of those things and just kind of like, I I don't know if something is, if it feels relevant, if it, if the context of what they've been famous for feels relevant, I'll include it, but I'd rather hear new stories just because they're more interesting to me Mm -hmm. and I've heard the old ones. Mm -hmm. And so that's the part that's really fun, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I, I really feel that everybody's interesting if you ask them the right questions. For sure. And yeah. with someone famous, it's really fun because they're, there's more of their life available to you. Totally. On the internet. <laughs> so you can find these funny little things, you know? It's like, oh, that's interesting. What's that? I want to ask about that. I'm sure there's a story there, you know? Cool. Um, Tone de Cotillo, bouldering project, root setter, mm-hmm. writer, um, kind of like... Climbing philosopher. Climbing philosopher. Coach. coach, Yeah. Like amazing human being. Yeah. Really amazing um, human being. Points out that you are a great listener and wonders if that's like a personality trait or something that you've cultivated. Huh. (laughs) 
Because I've noticed, I mean, obviously you are a great listener. Like you've done, you know, 20 something podcasts. Yeah. And you've hardly, you've managed to hardly say anything about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that that's not hard for me. Okay. Not talking is not hard for me. I'd much rather ask questions and listen. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's very strange to me that I host a podcast. <laughs> I don't it really seems like the perfect role for you. I though. don't really know how we got here, but do you think you have an idea of where that comes from? Like what, what man, I wish I had a thoughtful answer. I don't know how to answer Maybe that. You're just a curious, humble person. And... I'm, I don't, I don't know. It's really, I mean, it really is honestly quite strange to me that I'm doing this. I never would have thought that I would do something like this. I love art. Yeah. And I love music. Yeah. But I never loved performing. That was not a natural role for me. I'm totally an introvert. I'm an outgoing introvert. Right. Like I'm sociable and I like meeting people and right. I can kind of like turn that on. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I need to recharge, you know? Yeah. I need to sure. do my thing and like yeah. I can recharge with like a couple of really close friends mm-hmm. if it's like chill. If it's chill and if it's like interesting kind of, if there's more depth there, if it's like interesting mm-hmm. conversation, right. that, that really fills me up. You can't have small talk. I, I can kind of hack it, but like, yeah, it's it wears me out, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Same. Mm-hmm. Charlie Manganello asks, what's the one thing you wish someone told you when you first started pushing hard rock climbs? Sorry, pursuing hard rock climbs. Hmm. I feel like we've we've touched on this in different ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I'm looking for a new answer here. I'm going to kind of sidestep the, the question because I think this is a more... I don't have a good answer. I think this is a more interesting answer. All of my injuries from climbing and all of my plateaus have kind of stemmed from a similar pattern, which mm. is beating my head against the same thing for too long. Mm. Like, it's really interesting to me that you can just exclusively beat your head against a single rock climb. And maybe it depends on the rock climb, you know? Like, I imagine if it's a 50-meter route in Oleana, maybe there's so much more to learn on it and Mm -hmm. do on it that, like, there's more variety built in. But Mm -hmm. when it's, like, a bouldery route at Smith, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of tweaky, and it comes down to, like, one really bad right-hand hold that you grab in a weird way every time, I've never been able to beat my head against something and breakthrough. Mm. I've, it's only through like taking a step back, mm. addressing some weaknesses, coming back to it a few months later, fresh with a new, you know, refreshed mindset and then send it. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I've ever been able to, to break through the, the stubborn, mm. like hard ones. Mm-hmm. And what's, what I found has worked for me really well now is I almost never try the same hard route more than like two days in a week. Right. You mentioned yeah. that. I have a lot of variety built in. I I might work on like two or three hard projects at the same time, but like rotate between them or have like a hard day. And then my next performance day is like second tier routes or trying to, you know, trying to climb a bunch of five twelves or something. Right. And I, I don't know if it's like physical or psychological or both, but I tend to like get things done in the same amount of total time. Plus I send a bunch of other stuff along the way. And, um, yeah, I think that's been a, an important lesson for me as far as like mm-hmm. avoiding injury too. just not, not projecting one single thing mm-hmm. for a really long time period. And it's crazy. I mean, so many people at Smith do that and yeah. it, it kind of works, yeah. but it doesn't yeah. work that well for me. Yeah. So I think to answer Charlie's question, I think, um, I mean, it makes sense. I think I could have learned that earlier. Okay. I think I learned that the hard way. Right. Yeah. 
and you got you had some you sustained some injuries. Yeah, 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 yeah. Finger stuff. I mean, it makes sense. Like I, you definitely you wear down the same parts of your body. You use the same muscles over and over. Yeah. Oftentimes it's like weird, like tweaky holds and stuff. Totally. Drew's been complaining that he's got like a tendon thing from one of the holds on the crew. Drew Mac. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. This isn't a perfect analogy, but I kind of think of it. I've done a lot of weightlifting now at this point and like you never go in the weight room for three to six weeks and just deadlift, 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 Mm -hmm. you know? And then once you like hit your numbers on the deadlift, you switch to bench and then you bench, 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 bench. Right. You mix it up. Right. You mix it up and you can be making progress at the deadlift, doing it once a week and progress at the bench and the squat, you know, if you're a power lifter and you're like kind of resting each of those things while you're working on the next thing Mm -hmm. and you can kind of progress all of them at once. Mm -hmm. That's Mm kind of how I think about my climbing now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. seems healthy. Yeah. Switch it up a little bit here from the training and the the podcasting. Mike Kirshner asks if you could take a trip for a month with one climber dead or alive, (laughs) who would it be? And where would you go? Oh man. (laughs) I, that God, that's like, that's such a like an infinitely large, amazing question <laughs> that I'm just going to go with the first thing that came, that came to my mind. I think still my favorite conversation that I've been able to have doing this is with Alan Watts. Okay. And as much time as I've spent with Smith, I would love to go back in time. Fuck yeah, dude. And spend a month with Alan <laughs> at Smith Rock. Yeah. In like 1985. Totally. When shit was just popping off. You when know? he had just had the all time psych. Totally. For Smith. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that'd be super. That fun. makes sense. Uh-huh. Cool, good answer. Plus, like the rock would, you know, the holds would all still be there, and that'd, right, that'd be really cool. <laughs> the holds would all be way better <laughs> and fresher, and not so polished. <laughs> totally. Steve Bechtel asks, if you could only do one more hard route in your life, which one would it be? I'll let you take that one first, and then there's like a. a... That's pretty easy for me. Just do it. Okay. Smith Rock. That's the big dream. The follow-up question is, why aren't you trying it now? Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's so Steve to drop the hammer like right? that. <laughs> uh, that's a legitimate question. I have tried the start pitch. Yeah. The 13D start pitch. Yeah, we pitch, talked about that. And it went really well. And yeah. I think I haven't gone back for that because of logistics. And it's like, it's one of those things where like, it's just hard enough get to get back there. Uh, and find a partner who's psyched mm-hmm. that like, you kind of want to feel like you have been business, you know, like right. you have a chance of doing the thing. Right, right, right. And, um, I do intend to go back there actually this spring. I want to put in a, a good solid effort on spank the monkey. You, cool. you actually mentioned that one. Um, I'm really psyched on that and I want to be working on the start pitch of just do it as well. And, and at least like go up the whole route and check it out and see what I need to work on. But yeah, I don't know. It's like a fine line between crazy dreams and smart tactics, mm-hmm. you know? So balancing yeah. those two things. Yeah, you, you told me. I still me... haven't climbed 14A for, right. for people listening. You know, I've gotten insanely close, but... Bad man. There's a lot more... <laughs> Bad man. <laughs> there's a lot more boxes to check before. Just do it. It's like a smart... Investment. Know, time investment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. But I should get on it to find out yeah. what needs to happen for yeah, me to totally. get to that level. Cool. 
Um, this is from Brittany Goris. Okay. She asks, if you could climb on only one type of rock, i.e. granite, sandstone, limestone, etc., for the rest of your life, which one would it be and why? Probably limestone. Yeah, okay. I'm saying that sitting here in a rifle. Okay. Having come from 10 sleep. Yeah. And I had a great trip. Yeah. In 10 sleep, and I'm having a great time here. And I had a great time in St. George this past spring. Mm-hmm. So I think... I'm kind of cheating because there's, I find that there's a lot more variety within that rock type than most others. Yeah. You know, you totally. can, you can do cool techie slabs and like facey shit. You can do like steep roofs and it's got everything. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. 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 I mean, if sport climbing is your thing, I feel like and it, it is. takes the cake. Yeah. I yeah. still love, I love bouldering Yeah, and I still have goals with bouldering, but sport climbing is the, the main love. Wow. We actually got through these questions a lot faster than I thought we would. Chad at Clipping Chains Mm. asks, what's your ideal balance between meaningful work, travel, and climbing in the future? Hmm. I hope I get to keep doing this. I would love to keep doing this. There are a number of things. I mentioned the book, the, the Tools of Titans book. Starting this, my plan from the beginning was to turn this into a book, and I hope to do that. I plan on doing that. Um, there's a couple other things that are kind of add-ons to this podcast thing that I think complement it that I'm excited about. But as far as meaningful work, I'm I feel so fired up on on this project, and I, I honestly had no idea if people would be interested in it, or if they would listen, or if they'd care, or if they would resonate with the. You know, like I I ask every single guest what they're grateful for, and people are psyched about that. And they care and like the, the, not just the listeners, but like the guests answers are thoughtful and interesting. I didn't plan to do that. I just kept asking because the answers kept being interesting and it gives me so much hope for humanity mm-hmm. that that's something that people are interested in hearing about. Mm-hmm. So I hope to keep doing this. I love being on the road right now. I've been on the road since February full time. I don't think living on the road full time all the time feels like the right balance to me i think ultimately i'd like to find a place where where i could lay down some roots and and you know maybe have a cool little house or something um that might be in bend i love smith i have a lot more i want to do there but the caveat there is that i'd only be willing to do that or i hope to do that if i have like half the year to travel you know be there for six months or like be there for the spring and fall and travel in the summer, winter, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's the dream. That's what I'm looking towards. Cool. Yeah. You're living it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Also gratitude is such a powerful emotion. It really, yeah. Yeah, it is. One more question from Blake Carson. Then I get to ask my questions. Okay. (laughs) Describe a snapshot of a memorable climbing experience you've had. Hmm. What comes to mind first? Okay, the first thing that comes to mind, and I think this is a good one. I was in Leavenworth this past fall, a year ago, in November. And it was right before Thanksgiving. I was still working full-time. And I decided to take one of my weeks off, one of my two weeks off for the year, over the Thanksgiving week. I've got these two amazing friends um, back home. My best friend, Nathan Getson, and his now fiance. 
and they, they have this really cool business. They're teaching yoga and they do these amazing like sound baths and meditation workshops and things like that. And they did a, um, they did a weekend retreat and the theme of the retreat was gratitude. And I couldn't really, I hadn't really seen close up like what it was that they were offering and what they were doing. I'd just been hearing about it from Bend and from afar and I was excited about it. And it seemed like a perfect lead into the Thanksgiving holiday and time with family, you know? So I, I went up there for that and I knew I wanted to climb as well, but just kind of fitting it in around that and around family time and whatever. <clears throat> it was freezing cold. I was up in Leavenworth and, uh, I think it snowed halfway through the week. Every day it was below 30 degrees in the Canyon. And I don't know why, but I decided to try this V10 called Angelina Jolie. Mm. When I first started climbing in Leavenworth, it was in the first guidebook as a project. Mm. And then I think uh, Johnny Guicchia did it. Mm -hmm. Johnny G did it and called it V12. Okay. So it, it had always been in my mind. It's for listeners. It's like vertical. It's like a vertical sloper rail technical mm. V10 boulder. Cool. And it, at first I thought it was V12. So it was always in my head is like, oh my God, slopers on a vertical wall, like V12. This thing's got to be impossible. Mm -hmm. But over the years, like more people did it. It got downgraded. It got kind of solidified as like hard V10, solid V10. But it was always still really intimidating to me. You know, I never even tried it. And then for some reason that season, I was like, I can climb V10. I can do technical stuff. I can stand on my feet. Like I should try this thing. You know, why have, I'm just holding myself back with like this self-limiting belief. So I went and tried it, had a really good first session on it. Uh, didn't quite do it. Did some family stuff. I think Thanksgiving happened and then it snowed in the Canyon and I had one more day. It was my last day before driving back to Bend and I go out there <clears throat> And it was a high of 19 degrees Fahrenheit in the canyon that day. And everything was covered in snow. I went to the warm-up area, snow on all the boulders. I couldn't top anything out. I like, oh, my God. I, like, climbed up this V0 and dropped off and climbed up this classic V4 and, like, scrambled onto the lip and then dropped back down on the pad, you know, and did that a few <laughs> Sketch. times. Sketch. Warmed up. And then I drove up the canyon. And I was like, okay, this thing's screwed. It's going to be covered in snow. But whatever. I'll check it out. And I drive up there. And it just so happens that there's this valley to the south that's perfectly positioned so that the sun shines on that boulder. Like it like beelines straight through all these trees and like illuminates the boulder for wow. two hours a day. And it was the only thing that had melted in wow. the whole canyon. It wow. was totally dry. Wow. And so I get there and I set up like a ladder and I brush all the holes and chalk them up and like... Went to battle with this thing, you know, for like three or four hours or something. Like between every try, I was like stuffing my shoes and my coat to keep them warm and like <laughs> running around and doing jumping jacks <laughs> and stuff. Hardcore. And I sent. I nice. sent that day. 19 degrees. Wow. Yeah. Epic. Yeah. And it, Epic. Just, it just felt like, wow, man, like there, I had decided that that thing was too hard for me and I had never even tried. And then on a 19 degree day in the winter, you know. Got Amazing. The, got this thing done. So yeah, that cool. was a, that's a really special one for me. Nice. Breaking down those really strong mental barriers is like the craziest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. And like some, the first ascensionist assigned this arbitrary number. Right. And I decided that I couldn't do it. Right. You know? Right. So funny how our brains just like limit us automatically. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that one was a lesson. Cool. Yeah. Okay, what you got? <laughs> My questions? Uh-huh. Um, uh. I think the thing that I'm most curious about just in life is like what it's like inside people's heads Mm. and like what people's inner lives are like. And so my question is, what is it like to live inside your head? What is your inner life like? And do you think that there's a discrepancy between how you seem to others and how you seem to yourself? Wow, Ethan. (laughs) Let me chew on that for a minute. Because, like, you know, I I feel like I might come across as, like, easygoing and, I don't know, not taking things too personally or whatever. But I think that, like, I'm definitely, like, a little bit of a tortured soul. Mm. And I think that maybe that comes across, like, in writing and stuff and, like, in personal conversations. But I don't think people would really know that just, like, meeting me for the first time at a crag or something. That's so interesting. Having spent the last week hanging out with you, yeah, I I would not have guessed that if I didn't already know you. But like, That's I've spent a story. large part of my life like hating myself, probably. Hmm. And I mean, it's not like everyone does that, you know. It's I think that you know, Jonathan people like Jonathan have like a really high baseline level of happiness, and you know, there are a lot of people out there like that who just yeah manage to stay more present and i don't know that they just kind of are who they are and what you see is what you get but yeah i'm just curious like how does it feel to be steven dimmit (laughs) (laughs) i think one of the things i've always desired most is to really feel known Mm -hmm. and i've been I've felt really full the last eight or nine months doing this because I think I feel like, I think I feel really happy with how I'm representing myself doing this thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think I always live up to the curated edited version of myself that I put out on this podcast, but I want to live up to that all the time. I want to, Mm -hmm. I want to embrace my curiosity. I want to listen to people more than I talk. Mm-hmm. I want to learn from everybody. Mm-hmm. I want to like go into each interaction, assuming that people have something to teach me, even if I disagree with them, mm-hmm. especially if I disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And I also want to like laugh and have fun and, mm-hmm. and, you know, just like enjoy the, the little things of life with people. And I feel like, I've gotten, I've been blown away at the, the number of messages I've received from people and the, the response to this whole project. And it really has felt a lot more validating than I expected it would. Cause it, it feels like they're saying that they appreciate the work I'm doing, but it feels like they're saying, I appreciate who you are, you know, in a way mm-hmm. and putting, when you, whenever you put yourself out there in, in some way, it's a really vulnerable thing, but I think in this, with this project, I'm really grateful. It's like creating this accountability for myself, you know, like, <laughs> like if I meet someone at the crag who's listened to the podcast, 
it's not cool if I like throw a wobbler, you know, and I don't really, I, I haven't thrown many wobblers anyway, but like, it's really neat. I like want to remember to zoom out and like take those slow moments and like really ask people interesting questions when I meet them, mm -hmm. whoever they are, just mm -hmm. random people at the mm -hmm. crag or, you know, people at the grocery store or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but, but I think if you've listened to this podcast, you at least have a pretty good idea of who I aspire to be mm -hmm. and, and who I am on the days when I'm, when I really like myself. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, at the same time, like I had a lot of tortured years with my own climbing. Like I, I definitely lost the, lost the forest for the trees, I guess, with training and like for a number of years, man, climbing was the thing and I was sacrificing community and um, on purpose, you know, I was like really pretty reclusive for a while there in Bend and just like living in my garage, training on my fingerboard or on my little home wall. And if I didn't send, I was like pretty bummed because mm. that was the only thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was climbing. Okay. I was climbing pretty well, mm -hmm. but I wasn't happy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I'm a lot happier doing this. Cool. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What have you been especially grateful for lately? <laughs> Let's continue the gratitude train here. Yeah. I mean, it won't be a surprise, but getting to do this. Yeah. I've met so many people, man, that recognize what climbing means to me. And they express some sort of like a longing for something like that. And I don't think everyone has that. Some people are really content to dabble in this and dabble in that and you know whatever just kind of live a rich and varied life and that's amazing but a lot of people do crave like one thing that they're passionate about mm -hmm. and i craved that for a long time and i feel so grateful that i found climbing because it filled that yeah but for a long time there was also like a missing piece to that you know it's mm -hmm. like i always i mean for years i i remember really wrestling with that like climbing is so self focused it's so self-centered is it okay even that i'm like spending this much energy and time on myself pursuing this thing and i i was just really craving more purpose with it you know mm -hmm. and i didn't know what that meant like whether that's why i was thinking about coaching or training or teaching or whatever i've thought a lot about root development like ways of giving back mm -hmm. and i feel like stumbling into this podcast and getting to share people's stories, stories that remind listeners that they're not alone mm -hmm. with their struggles, mm -hmm. whatever it is. It's the same thing that I experienced that first year of climbing, you know, like this is the thing. I actually almost said this on a, another podcast and it felt too cheesy and I, I, I backed away from it, but I feel like I was meant to do this. It feels right. It feels like, yeah like your purpose yeah yeah and so now i have two things you know right. it, it like really was the other piece that i felt like was missing and yeah. i like am so it's all so random like if that friend of mine hadn't taken me bouldering who knows and if i hadn't stumbled into tim ferris because some random friend had recommended his podcast who knows and i feel so grateful to have found two of those things in my life yeah that I feel like, wow, this is like the thing I was 
this feels right. This yeah, is like for the sure. thing I was meant to do, you know? Cool. Yeah. You're fulfilled. I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. I, <laughs> I feel the, the missing piece part myself, for sure, hmm. with climbing and with life, you know? Knowing that climbing is amazing and that it's, like, given me so much, you know? Like, so much of myself my my being or whatever has climbing and traveling and everything has just shaped shaped me so much and given me so many gifts and stuff but i feel like yeah there's still a missing piece for sure like there's still another part of my purpose that yeah that's not being fulfilled but that's amazing that you have that yeah yeah um yeah and it's funny i trip out about people who don't have something like climbing which is like most people i think <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. have something like climbing you know totally. they're just like what am i doing with my life you know they're how you were at the you know airplane part manufacturer <laughs> what is what was the yeah it's a company that actually builds aircraft it's oh, okay. epic aircraft is the company oh, wow. they build a small six-seater oh, okay. turboprop it was like you at epic aircraft except like you know, those people don't even have the thing that they go and do on the weekends. That's like amazing, you know, Yeah. that's like, so mind bogglingly cool. That I couldn't I... relate to anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Like, yeah. What do you guys do? Right. Dang. Yeah. But it's like, what does anyone do? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have something, you know, spirituality or, you know, meditation or just any, something that grounds them and keeps them present in like the current moment Mm -hmm. and a lot of people you know have other sports that are amazing and other pastimes reading writing creative outlets and stuff but so many people just have nothing like this so do you have ideas that you're exploring with that i have so many ideas (laughs) nothing but ideas but just very little follow-through at the at the current moment but actually i've been thinking a lot more about it recently i mean i feel like here in rifle after being here for two weeks and just like driving around everywhere and climbing and doing stuff on my rest days, I feel totally exhausted, but I'm psyched to like, yeah, reset when I go to Boulder and think about it more and hmm. start making moves. But, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, um, the word God hmm. and what that means to you. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Because I kind of like grew up in kind of like an atheist household. Okay. I mean, I, my mom's Jewish, but like my parents are kind of hippies, like kind of pretty much atheist hippies. And I feel like religion and just the word God, like religions claim over the word God, I guess, kind of made me secretly like poo poo it a little bit. Sure. But I think that as I've grown older and as I've like gotten touch with you know, my spirituality a little bit more, the word God has evolved to me Hmm. and I feel like I don't poo poo it anymore. You know, it's like, it means something to me, you know? Um, and yeah, definitely recently after listening to Eckhart Tolle's new earth it like, I think he kind of put words to how I thought about the word God. Interesting. You mentioned that book a week ago. I'm, I'm really curious to read it. I like view everything through the lens of Eckhart Tolle now. It's so funny. Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, yeah. What, what do you, what do you think? Cause you, you grew up in a Christian household Uh 
And so I'm just curious, like what the, what the word God evokes Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. That's really cool to hear you say all that because so often, and, and it makes sense, but so often in my young adult life, I would encounter people that like had such a interesting skewed perception of what God was mm-hmm. looking at it from outside mm-hmm. of a religious lens, you know, mm-hmm. because of how crazy religious people have been and because of how badly they've represented God. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, you have this image in your mind of like some dude with a white beard that lives in the clouds and like mm-hmm. decides whether mm-hmm. you're going to suffer or not. <laughs> and like, yeah, that's really fucked up mm-hmm. and no wonder you want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what does God mean to me? My spirituality has, has really evolved a lot and I haven't talked about it much in a long time, really. Um, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. I think, I think moving to bend and reintegrating into a new community, I was pretty involved in a Christian ministry in college even. And it was, you know, it's Bellingham. It was pretty progressive. And, and I, I still, I I think like there were a lot of people that, that got it there, you know, Mm. there there are are a lot of people, like, it's really interesting if you like, like I grew up Christian and if you get rid of all of the, the, the details that people argue about and the old Testament stuff, and you really zoom in on the life of Jesus and what his life actually looked at, Mm -hmm. even the most like left-wing progressive liberals would look up to that guy. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was hanging out with like the scum of the earth, just like love and compassion, you Mm -hmm. know, just accepting everybody. Mm -hmm. It's the coolest dude. Yeah. And that has been so like so many religions lose that. Right. Lose sight of that. And, you know, when I moved away from Bellingham and I moved to Bend and I tried to integrate with a new community there, it really struck me really, really quickly that there was so much baggage for people Mm. that came with even the word Christianity Mm. or God Mm -hmm. that it kind of like wasn't even worth it anymore, you Mm. know? And that might sound like a cop out. Like I wasn't, um, like I, like I hid from something or ran away from Mm -hmm. something, but it was really more like, wow, this thing you know, like if I walk up to you and I say, I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels funny to even say like mm-hmm. what pops up into your head if you're living in the Northwest, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you're probably going to make assumptions about, uh, being sheltered and closed minded mm-hmm. and hypocritical mm-hmm. and Republican mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like all these other things that I didn't identify with mm-hmm. and that didn't resonate with me when I thought about like who this character of Jesus was, whether you believe in him or not, he was like a representation of like the type of person I want to be accepting and loving and compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I realized like carrying that identity with me was making it harder for me to connect with people and making it less likely that I felt known. It Mm -hmm. comes back to that. I wanted Mm -hmm. to feel understood Mm -hmm. and known. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if I, if I say that and identify with that, Mm -hmm. I'm starting off way over here in Mm -hmm. this box that people Mm -hmm. would put me in. And then I have to like, reassure them that I don't buy into all this crazy shit. Right. You know, right. Right. And it just wasn't worth it anymore. And I kind of realized finally like, wow, I can have my own spirituality and still that can still mean a lot to me. And it doesn't have to be going to church on Sundays and it doesn't have to fit. I don't even think it has to fit into 
any kind of religious doctrine, you know? Like I've right. even since I remember this, even from like being a little kid, I always thought like if God is God, he, she, they, whatever God is, all of it, if God is God, shouldn't God be able to work through different culture mm-hmm. and different spiritual doctrines mm. and whatever mm-hmm. different, you know, it just makes sense, right? Like mm-hmm. we should, and, and I've found so much truth in my life through so many things that weren't the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Like if you look into the history of like how that book was put together, just like a bunch of dudes that decided kind of willy nilly, like what was going to go in there. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm still very spiritual and I still, I love the idea that there's something kind of like behind all this that we don't totally understand. And I don't think it's a puppeteer pulling strings. I don't know if it's the force of love or if it's like a collective consciousness, Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I think for a long time I felt like I needed to be able to define it Mm -hmm. and I don't anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I have this sense that like there's something really cool and really big going on there. Yeah. And I would rather choose to like be psyched about that. Yeah. Than like choose to not believe in it or right. Choose that this is all just kind of happening. I mean, if you feel it, then you kind of have no choice but to believe in it. Yeah. And yeah. you don't need labels for it. Yeah. 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 That might be part of it too. I mean, I've had a lot of experiences that like, they're powerful, man. Mm-hmm. I still have them now, you know, and mm-hmm. they don't have to, have any direct ties to anything that smells like religion you know (laughs) it's like sitting down with someone and having like a real conversation yeah totally you know yeah i love um i love the author c.s lewis i haven't read any of his stuff in a really long time but i think he i still carry like some of his writing with me and he had this idea of like bringing heaven to earth now Mm -hmm. you know like it's Mm -hmm. not some crazy Thing with pearly gates and in the clouds and whatever like we can we can choose to bring heaven to earth every day mm-hmm. in these mm-hmm. little moments mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's funny yeah. that's that's like similar to what toll talks about a little bit interesting is like i mean his book is called new earth yeah yeah and it's kind of like at the end you're like oh you're talking about like you know a conscious awakening that brings like heaven to earth basically mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and i think like I don't know where I I got this from, probably him as well. But like on the flip side, you know, I don't think hell is this. I think hell is real. I think we see it all the time. Mm, And mm -hmm. I don't think it's fire and brimstone and like you're damned because of some random thing you don't believe or weren't exposed to or whatever. It's it's like that feeling of total isolation, you know, Mm. when we like let ourselves be totally cut off from, Mm -hmm. from other people and from separatism yeah yeah yeah. it's like that black void you know Mm -hmm. like that emptiness that hopelessness like Mm -hmm. i think we see that in our own lives and Mm -hmm. in these in these moments and in other people that are suffering yeah all the time yeah thanks man thanks for telling me all that (laughs) yeah 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 it's funny i think like toll talks a lot about like the mania of humanity and how it's all caused by the ego and and basically it's just like the ego either fearing or desiring something mm-hmm. you know always 
but then like as soon as you detach yourself from it and you're aware of it then you are not it anymore mm. you're like the awareness instead mm-hmm. but he he talks about god as as like the kind of the collective consciousness or like the one the one consciousness mm. like the one universal consciousness mm-hmm. or whatever and like about how everyone's inner purpose is to simply just be present and like live in the in the now and be rooted in the present and be like, be conscious, be like aware of your consciousness and stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're fulfilling your inner, your inner purpose, then your outer purpose becomes more apparent. Hmm. Yeah. I was like thinking about that a minute ago when you were talking about your, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to like this book. Oh yeah. yeah. It's a game changer for sure. <laughs> That's cool. Um, well, man, thank you so much for, yeah, I, I kind of want to share one more thing. Oh, perfect. I yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leading up to this, I was thinking like, I was thinking about like what it was important to me to say, mm-hmm. and my brain was all over the place, and I didn't touch on a number of stuff. I've alluded <laughs> to like, I've alluded to this story of me really kind of going too deep into diet and nutrition uh-huh, and starving myself uh-huh. to climb harder yeah and i do this is not the time or place it's too long of a story but i do want to share that yeah because i think i hope to help other people avoid a, a, probably one of the biggest mistakes that i've made that can be the intro to your book <laughs> <laughs> eat food try hard <laughs> um so there's a couple things i probably will come back to in some form or another but mm-hmm. i think the thing that i've been really thinking about lately Mm, yeah i actually wanted to ask like how what have you been thinking about lately that feels important perfect yeah (laughs) that was like i have an answer for you (laughs) perfect i'm glad that we didn't cut off the interview yeah (laughs) it's it's been highlighted for me a couple times in the last you know recently this year and and in the last couple years Life is so seldom black and white, Mm. whether we're talking about training Mm -hmm. and the best way to get stronger, whether we're talking about rock climbing and the best way to get better at that. I've been, I talked about this a little bit with Solomon Barth and and Katie Lambert too. I've been eating meat again Mm -hmm. and I've totally changed my mind about that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things I had this vague (laughs) idea that like, meat was bad for me and it was bad for the environment mm-hmm. for years. I had that viewpoint. And once I really, at some point I decided like, I should really look into this. And the deeper I went, man, the less sure of anything I became mm. and I'm less sure than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. think this is good for me. And I think there's a way to do it. That's actually a really good thing for the environment and mm-hmm. our future mm-hmm. as a species. Mm-hmm. But man, the more time you spend in training the more time you spend reading about nutrition and studying research, the more people you talk to about spirituality and religion, it's so hard to tell what's right and wrong. It's There's so many shades of gray. And I, I also, I, I think it's really been on my mind lately with this incredibly important social justice movement of Black Lives Matter. You know, like we might be living through, this might be the most important historical event that we all live through you know it really matters it's super important but i've been really interested in like what do we actually do Mm -hmm. to help Mm -hmm. you know like what actually leads to the change that that gets us to a better world you Mm. know hopefully for ourselves but definitely for our kids for their kids 
And when you start listening to the people that have devoted their lives to this stuff and thinking about it, there's a lot of differing opinions about what we do and what's best, you know? Absolutely. And it's been really discouraging to me to see people drawing hard lines. Yeah. I mean, there's just like clearly so many people care about this right now, but what I'm seeing, like sitting back as an, as an observer of all this stuff, so many people care so strongly about this movement and they all more or less want the same things, you know, Mm -hmm. but they're disagreeing on the steps Mm -hmm. and the details, you Mm -hmm. know, and how to think about it and how to think about it. Yeah. And, and probably none of them are wrong. You know, they all have valid Mm -hmm. points, Mm -hmm. but it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. It's a really tough issue. You know, it it runs really deep. Mm. And what I've been thinking about lately and what I would want to say to people is just because it's so hard to know what to do, just be kind to one another. Yeah. We're all trying to figure this out, you know? Yeah. I, a friend of mine told me this and I've really been thinking about it. I really love the analogy, but you know, he said, it's kind of like this. It's like you ask someone, a random person is a whale, a fish or a mammal. And if you're like a child and you don't know any better and you see a whale swimming in the sea, you're like, it's a fish. Mm-hmm. But if you're like kind of educated and you kind of know a little bit more, you're like, it's a mammal, you know, mm-hmm. it's not what it appears on the surface. But if you ask a PhD biologist, marine biologist, they're like, it's a fish. Mm. It's a fish that evolved in the sea mm-hmm. and then evolved to live on land mm-hmm. and then came back to the sea. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there's like an asterisk there. Mm-hmm. And the problem comes when the people that are in the mammal group see the fish group and they just lump them all into the ignorant child thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like I've seen so much of that. Like, mm-hmm. I, I guess like so many times in my life, Whenever I've been most certain about something, I've inevitably changed my mind. (laughs) You know, I'm really certain because it's like that dangerous period where you're like, oh my God, it's a mammal. Like, this is amazing. Everyone should know, you know, but then like, turns out, oh, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. And that's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. And I think I would just encourage people to, you know, whatever it is that you feel strongest about, that's great. And like, you probably care a lot about that thing and that's really beautiful, mm-hmm. but keep no harm will come from keeping an open mind, you know? Yeah. And even if you totally disagree with someone, if you're not willing to change your mind, you're also not going to change their mind by yelling at them on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't lead to anything good, you know? No. Be kind to one another. Yeah. Share your perspective, create space to, hear them mm. to let them say what they want to say and to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And you might learn, you might learn something from them, you know, so that's what I've been thinking about. Lately. Those are important <laughs> thoughts <laughs> for sure. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ethan. When you mentioned this, when we were talking on the phone months ago, I was like, am I ever actually going to sit down with Ethan Pringle and do this reverse interview? I probably had the same thought. And here we are. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just so happened that we were going to be in Rifle at the same time. And then here we are. Yeah. And then you were like, how about Friday? And I was like, I got nothing going on Friday. Let's do Friday. (laughs) 
And then I was like, oh shit. <laughs> this is, wait, this is really happening? Oh, okay. Um, help. <laughs> well, you did great. This is my podcast now. This is a hostile takeover. <laughs> cool, man. Well, I think we're late for a jam session. Yeah. Let's get out of this van. Throw on some jackets and yeah, venture stuff, out into the night. It's stuffy in here. <laughs> Are you going to eat anything? Probably. Yeah, probably beef? some uh, beef tacos. Nice. <laughs> Sick. Some cabbage. And Perfect. Mushrooms. Perfect. <laughs> I can't wait. I'll make some leftovers for you if you want. Thank you. Thank Perfect. you. All right, man. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13. You've been working, but you're blurting.